0: This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world.
1: And Iblis is thinking, you know... I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about
2: you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want
1: you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have had so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting a position on me so will never... to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who is
2: the grotto leader? Don't oh, remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Are these people in very high position, Jack. Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 37. I'm your co-host, Dimitri.
3: I'm Khaled
2: and today we're going to go back into our our little Siskel and Ebert chairs.
3: Mhm. Yeah. Um, in just the just subliminal the Waldorf. Uh <laughs> um yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: Yeah, we're we're going to take our seats in the subliminal cinema once again. Um uh,
3: yeah. This is one that I wanted to do for a while. I hope people won't uh, feel like we're doing uh, too many uh, film-focused ones, but we have, like, uh, some, uh, you know, meaty historical ones coming up, uh, and this is one that I think is, is, you know, a good, very good subject because uh, one of the films I think we're going to talk about in depth today is really one of the seminal texts uh, in, like, American culture and really, like, in global... Pop culture for uh, understanding the occult and uh, particularly demonic possession. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that like the influence of it can't really be understated uh, in terms of uh, you know uh, popularizing uh, the idea of exorcism of uh, possession uh, and creating an impression of how those type of things operate uh, in the popular consciousness. So I feel like it really is very important, uh, text in that way. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. And I think that, yeah, the person, uh, the director of the film, William Friedkin is someone whose oeuvre is very interesting, uh, that, you know, I think maybe could be grist for a couple of, of episodes down the line. Uh, and this will be like our first foray into, into his work. But I think that, you know, particularly through this movie, he's really made an impression on, uh, you know, the discourse around some of the topics that we talk about a lot on on the show. Um,
2: yeah, absolutely, and um, I think you you name checked it there, but yeah, we're gonna be talking about William Friedkin's nineteen seventy three thrill- three film, The Exorcist, uh, which was like a smash hit uh, when it came yeah. out in nineteen seventy three.
3: Mm-hmm. And, I think expectations and still weren't, holds weren't up, super I mean. high. Yeah, there was like a surprise smash. I think like you know people were kind of taken uh, by surprise um, when they saw the movie, uh, or when you know the movie was such a success, uh, and people were like lining up around uh, the block to see it and things like that, and the yeah the whole thing. Uh, it was it was really like a cultural phenomenon and people would like sell tickets to watch the audience and stuff. You know, there's of course mm. all these urban legends around The Exorcist. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, a huge smash. Yeah, um, yeah,
2: absolute, yeah. And, and kind of helped kick off uh, the really the golden years of like the 70s new Hollywood era where mm-hmm, you had these yeah. very, um, very adult movies coming out that dealt with a pretty downer subject matter. Mm-hmm. and of course like you know Friedkin he made this movie hot off the heels of the French Connection in 1971 where mm-hmm. I think he won they won multiple he Oscars won the a- for the Academy
3: Award yeah yeah yeah. that's right um, that's I right that's why yeah um he was kind of hot at this time and I think that's why William Peter Blatty wanted him to do the movie I think that I actually heard that William Peter Blatty uh the author of the book, the exorcism, which was based, which was itself based on some sort of true story, um, that had been reported involving like a boy who, who experienced demonic possession. Um, mm-hmm. he like, apparently had offered like his, all his royalties and all of his profit from the film to, uh, William Freakin if he would let him play, uh, you know, the lead role of Damien Karras. Um, <laughs> but I guess William Freakin was like, no, I don't see you uh, in that part. So he wouldn't let him do it. Uh, But uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, Um, so I guess, but I think that his interest in Freakin' was partially due to his having done The French Connection. Um, Yeah, and
2: and I think that, like, The French Connection, that the movie The French Connection is based on, I think has even come up tangentially in a lot of our previous episodes, everything from, I mean, maybe we haven't uh, put too fine a point in it, but everything from like skull and bones people during the cold war, uh, being involved, uh, tons of people, you know, with mafia connections that were sort of connected in various ways to the JFK assassination that had a relationship with the CIA. Uh, those are actually, I believe like basically, um, some of those are the same mob figures. I think lucky Luciano, um, was one of them, uh, who basically set up, the drug pipeline that was colloquially known as the French connection, whereby uh, drugs would be shipped from Marseille, uh, heroin particularly, um, mm-hmm. and uh, by the Corsican Mafia, which was protected by the CIA and the STEC after World War II in exchange for working to prevent French communists from bringing the old port of Marseille under their control. So they literally hired like Mafia goons. To be strike breakers to like go down and beat the shit out of uh french communists that were you know uh, organizing strikes and unions and things and mm-hmm. in exchange for doing that then they were given the blessing of the cia and french intelligence to uh smuggle uh lots of heroin into the east coast of the united states and so that's like the subject matter that's the background of his oscar-winning smash movie that Put Friedkin on the map and I think mm-hmm. that's not a kind of coincidental thing because something that we will um probably uh we'll, we'll probably touch upon some of the other uh movies in his oeuvre but there's a, a funny thing with Friedkin where he's sort of operating in like a Friedkin cinematic like a like a paranoid Friedkin cinematic universe Mm -hmm. that uh, is you know that is um, yeah
3: yeah yeah I think that's interesting yeah with Sorcerer especially I think that's an interesting way to kind of illustrate it is that yeah I think that all that stuff is in a way kind of in the background even of The Exorcist like it's sort of a different movie but because like you know yeah it has a sort of new Hollywood auteur component you can see some of the themes, like, the themes of the other films, like, are not really irrelevant. Sorcerer is a really interesting movie. I don't know if, like, you know, this will be the only Sorcerer episode, if we'll treat, like, Sorcerer separately, because there's so much mm-hmm. going on in that movie in terms of, like, Nazism in South America. Like yep. And uh, I think that that it's interesting to contextualize Freakin in terms of New Hollywood through that movie, because that movie, like, bombed completely, and was a huge disappointment on the heels of The Exorcist, like, partially because it came out at the same time as Star Wars. Exactly, Um, exactly. And, like, uh, it's kind of, in some of the narratives of this, is being held up as, like, kind of a a turning point or an inflection point where Hollywood sort of looked at these two movies and was like, all right, I guess Star Wars is the way to go and not, like, Sorcerer, this weird, kind of obscure, almost uh, European aesthetically kind of movie that deals with these, like, very uh, dark and and, uh, kind of... Uh, Inaccessible uh, themes Uh, But the whole idea Even the fact that it was called Sorcerer uh, Mm -hmm. Was kind of misleading Uh, It's the name of one of the vehicles That features uh, heavily in the film Which is basically about a bunch of desperate people uh, Who are all living under false identities In South America who have to transport (laughs) Like a uh, tub of Nitroglycerin like over like Extremely dangerous terrain and like Yeah to blow up up An earning
2: uh, like a burning Oil well that it had been blown up by like communist guerrillas or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's all sorts lines. of
3: like, you know, ominous stuff involving like a, the Nazi presence in South America and everything and lots of allusions to it, uh, which, you know, on um, my rewatch of the Exorcist for this episode, we were just talking about before we started recording, uh there's also like allusions to sort of like Nazi war criminals like hiding in, in plain sight. Uh, Mm-hmm. So yeah, something like, I had, something I had still... missed.
2: Um, people don't emphasize that as much about The Exorcist, but yeah, when we went back and rewatched it, there is a Nazi connection going on. Um, yeah, it's weird. You know,
3: yeah, and, uh, and there but... is a
2: there are there are Nazi connections as well to uh, like the actual friend's connection. I'd have to go back and like watch that film to see like how much he puts a point on it. But uh, but I guess uh, one of the big figures in it was Henri Lafont. Who was one of the heads of the French Gestapo in Vichy France during the uh, German occupation in World War II? So yeah. it's like it's going. All these movies somehow were yeah. this lurking menace of like n- post-war Nazis uh, it around. It seems some like reason.
3: something that yeah, freaking had some kind of fascination with, and that there's like you know I don't. Uh, yeah, I think that the fact that, that worked its way into both projects and you know into or into various projects uh is uh an indication of some kind of of interest and it's interesting we can talk uh later how it's kind of portrayed in the exorcist but yeah i just wanted to say the very fact that you know sorcerer is called sorcerer you know that's the name of one of the trucks in the movie that they use to, to carry nitroglycerin but i think uh there actually had to even be at one point point in some for some screenings like people were asking for their money back because there wasn't like a sorcerer in it you oh, know yeah, yeah. they're people like oh, oh, a little bit
2: pissed off yeah yeah There's yeah yeah, yeah exactly troll yeah, yeah to, like people, to say oh uh, this is what you want you want uh you want another spooky kind of religious supernatural horror movie well here like uh, look at this like utterly depressing uh anxiety ridden journey through south america with these like nitroglycerin filled trucks <laughs> and like yeah like, i mean it is it, it's so like it has such a kind of fuck you energy compared to something like star wars which was meant to go down so easy and, yeah, it really does represent a weird inflection point, but you know I mean, I think in general um and I can say about the Exorcist, even though the the subject matter of it is like pretty extreme, it just happened to be maybe it was the Watergate mood at the time, I mean interestingly, the Exorcist takes place in Georgetown in washington d c yeah. So Which it's like, not, I mean,
0: it's one of the like few not, a not political,
2: yeah, 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 like exactly. not political movies that were set in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. and really kind well, of render uh, it apparently in a beautiful, not political. spooky way. Yeah, yeah exactly. Apparently. Like that's not
3: political. kind of like part of the, yeah, exactly. It's part of the background of like the mise-en-scene that I don't think is irrelevant. We were also talking uh, about uh, in the movie, uh, the mother of the possessed girl, Reagan. uh her mother is, is Chris. Uh, she is uh, an actress, and she's creating this movie that is described as like the Disney, uh, you know, Walt Disney version of the Ho Chi Minh story. Yeah. Where she's like <laughs> on campus, like yelling at all these like angry hippies who like are trying to get the military off campus, and she's like, "Come on, you gotta work within the system and all this stuff." <laughs> yeah. And, like, yeah. So you can kind of see, like, in some way that these idea, like, you know, simmer under the surface, like the uh kind of uh, uh discontent of the period, like the, 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 uh, on we around Vietnam, like her, the, Mm -hmm. the anger around Vietnam and and around Watergate, uh, sort of, uh, you know, is in some way perhaps like manifesting, uh, in this like horrific event that happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, and And, I think that's something that, yeah, it comes back in rules of engagement too, but uh, yeah, again, like, uh, (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. we can Um, mention that a little later. He's gone on some very interesting twists and turns, Throughout Mm -hmm. his Hollywood career and has produced some, a couple more baffling films that I think the the biggest example of which is Rules of Engagement from 2000, which was based on a story from former uh, Virginia Senator and Vietnam veteran Jim Webb, who Mm -hmm. some people might remember uh, from one of the, Presidential debates in 2016, I think, bragging about like sneaking up on a VC soldier and like stabbing yeah. him to death or something like that. Right? Yeah, that's uh, definitely
3: what I'll always think of. Whenever I think of Jim Webb for the rest of my life, like I had awareness of him before, uh you know, uh, but yeah, and like you know, I, I remember when doesn't... he was
2: a, I remember when he was a like a championed as like a blue wave. Democrat when he got elected in two thousand six, and you know the mm-hmm. first time Pelosi kind of took over, um, you know the House, and like they took back the Senate, and right. uh, and and yeah, like Jim Webb was kind of seen as this like, hey man, he was Reagan's Secretary of the Navy, like he's mm-hmm. a he, you know, he's a war fighter who thinks the war in Iraq is bad, and and it's extremely ironic that he ended up being like a relatively anti-war Democrat in the mid two thousands, given. The very predictive programming type story that he had produced by Hollywood a year before 9-11. Um, but, yeah, we could get to that a little bit um, uh, later. Uh, but, you know, yeah. back in well, the... I think-
3: I, yeah, I even heard that Free can actually, like, campaign for him in 2020, like, you know, and donated his campaign and, like, supported his campaign, like, you know, fiercely. Really? Uh, yeah, oh. yeah. Uh, I mean, he kind of has that same sense of, like, you know, 70s, like, liberal, like, kind of, like, we're anti-war, but we're not, like, you know, sissies. Uh, type of, like, masculinity, you know? Like, uh, yeah. he was like, yes, you know, I'm liberal, but I choked a VC soldier to death with my bare hands or something, you know? Like, <laughs> uh, or whatever it was. That's the kind was,
2: of thing you know, that like, would appeal, kind of like how, you know, Francis Ford Coppola and John Milius were hanging out with, like, Colonel Fred Rexer, who was, like, bragging about, like, Decapitating people and like torturing them in the Phoenix program and like brandishing guns and like the editing suite and they just thought that was like fucking badass, you know. Yeah, um, exactly. And that guy yeah. didn't even really see that he was participating in like an anti-war movie, but just about more like I want to show you what it's really like, you know. And and I think in his mind is like that when you see what it's really like, you're gonna understand why it was such a murderous psycho. In Vietnam, (laughs) like, you know, uh, but but, like there was there's a weird kind of like liminal space where those types of people could kind of like uh, coexist in the 70s. And it was like. Mm It, it was just kind of a fascinating. Vibe. I mean, some of these people, yeah, they were kind of like rich liberals, but they would like casually want to like hang out and party with like Huey Newton and stuff, like mm-hmm. you know. Which who knows could have been an op in its own way, like hey Jane Fonda, like go seduce Huey Newton, um, you know, or something like that. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of weird things going on in LA in the 70s, but there was a kind of openness to you know, kit, like overturn the rocks of like America and. Uh, you know, uh, just create this kind of ambiance of corruption mm-hmm. and paranoia. And of course, you know, I mean, yeah, this movie came out. It's a movie set in Washington, DC, um, kind of about like an unexplainable kind of, uh, almost conspiratorial, hor- you know, series of crimes that are happening. And I mm-hmm. think that must've spoken to people on a very, um, elemental level that there are like, yeah. these darker forces lurking. And Hollywood was like able to, not only allow the kind of depiction of that, um, but was like, you know, there's a lot of different reasons you could like chalk it up to um, that. This was just kind of the thing that was happening to make money at the time. Uh, But there was a good, like, you know, about a decade where uh, directors were allowed to paint in both these like very personal colors and kind of casually work in a little more like socially conscious kind of content and kind of editorialize and things like that but it's very different i just want to like you know slide in and it's like so different from today with like something you know we were just talking about like watchmen and like other things Mm -hmm. that have this uh this ambition to be political or give social commentary like the way in which friedman uh, that was doing it And it's not to say, like, oh, yeah, that's what it's not necessarily what his goal was, but like, even incidentally, I feel like he gives a much more rich an interesting uh, atmosphere of like 1973 and kind of the attitudes of people then, and a little more of like an oppositional kind of um, uh, frame for the whole story that doesn't like overdose on like being a PSA about anything. It's like, it's, it's, it's above that. Like I think Freakin probably would say that, I mean, he's making fun of the director who's making a sentimental political film that is really right. just like radical liberal reformism or whatever it's right, like crash yeah. course and it's also obviously uh and you know this comes back in a few ways during the story the, the director character who um who ellen burston's character chris is kind of casually dating uh he looks almost exactly like in his dress and appearance and style like roman polanski so yeah. there's even mm-hmm. that kind of a uh, little bit of a, a, nod made to, you know, and of course it's a story about like the devil and demonic possessions. So there's little like kind of haha ha thing going on there. But then, mm-hmm. you know, this guy, um, well, you know, uh, yeah, spoiler alerts begin now, uh, you know, this guy ends up dead in, like, a fucked-up way, and, um, you know, it's interesting to think about, like, you know, what happened to Roman Polanski and what happened to his wife and the, you know, making a satanic movie and then maybe being involved with, like, Satanists and all kinds of sketchy things, uh, you know, around all that, and so it's, like, even that... So I feel like, <clears throat> you know, Freakin is operating on, like, a more on a deeper, more paranoid level, Um, but one that really works. It hits. He has, like,
3: a documentary. I think his, like, uh, earlier work was in, like, the documentary genre, and he has, like, kind of a documentarian sensibility and, like, just, like, a kind of subtlety that, again, like, the, you know, uh, the kind of battle lines hadn't been drawn uh, in what, I guess, eventually kind of became, like, a complete blowout. Like, it was still that time of, great opportunity i guess it was before you know star wars uh and even jaws i think started to really uh cement everything i think this was even before jaws roy schneider would eventually also be in sorcerer which is interesting but uh
2: that's true uh, he he did yeah yeah, he he would after Jaws. i think jaws is 75 so yeah 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 yeah. it was
3: after jaws definitely but uh yeah um but yeah it was before the sort of uh that had kind of taken shape in a way there's a greater subtlety yeah like if it were made today it would be like there's all sorts of demons out there, Father Karras. Like, you know, there's racism. There's, you <laughs> know, like, it, that's, like, exactly like... There's you COVID. Know, it, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. Like,
3: uh, yeah, and there would be, like... Uh, yeah, it would be completely... Well, for one, also, like, another great thing about the movie is that, like, most... Like, the, the possession stuff and the exorcism, like, is not until, like, the very, very end. And most mm-hmm. of it is, like, this very ominous kind of buildup um you know I guess there is some kind of like crazy stuff like the uh the crawling on the stairs part you know mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. and so, like a lot Spitting of uh up pea
2: soup kind of thing
3: yeah that happens like I guess like when Karis like comes in but there is like a very very sort of slow ominous build-up um and like you know it's not like right out the gate like there is you know demons jumping around and that's definitely what would happen and there would also be like some aspect where like the demons were good probably i don't know like it would be like some kind and there would be like a franchise aspect to it where like uh you know uh yeah. they would be trying to and like i would just never yeah i guess it is based on a, an ip on a book so like maybe it would get made but i feel like if it weren't like you know i well, feel like marvel has characters that are exorcists so i feel like that would be more likely to be made uh you know, yeah, like. I
2: mean, I, I could see definitely, you know, like a Blumhouse movie. I mean, I think there have been. I think probably half of Blumhouse movies probably owe a lot of their DNA to The Exorcist. And yeah. But mm-hmm. I think usually uh, they're more kind of reliant on CGI jump scares and just like grim, dark aesthetics. And they just, you know, they don't have. This movie takes itself seriously as a drama kind of Mm -hmm. like it it doesn't uh adhere strictly not
3: self-conceived as a genre piece it's seen as like you know i think friedkin like even said that he sees it as like a movie about like the mysteries of faith or whatever and i think that sorcerer is similar in that i think that that's why the name in a way actually is appropriate because it deals with kind of the same themes uh around i guess fate and the capriciousness of it and the, yeah. you know, the, the hidden hand in the universe and these type of things. Exactly. Uh, the dark, the yes. the
2: vast dark forces kind of beyond your comprehension that are, you know, yeah. gui- that are kind of guiding you at every moment, which is, uh, you know, a heady thing for uh, for a Hollywood director to be obsessed with because, you know, they're, they're in yeah. the business of manufacturing dreams and have all kinds of pressures on them. And, you know, I think you know, while Friedkin was probably very lucky to be able to enter into the industry when he did uh those doors kind of started to slam shut by like the end of the 70s yeah. he, was, he was able to still kind of like he's enough of a stylist that i think he was able to still have a career uh but mm-hmm. you know uh not everybody i think i think the the windows are much more narrow today to do something or it would be honestly it would just be like kind of ghettoized to like an a24 category like ari aster gets to be william Friedkin today and that's kind of like it you know what I mean? Like, you're allowed to have yeah. kind of, like, one in the kind of the art house space. Uh, but the idea of, like, a huge blockbuster, like, it's the number one movie, is now something – you're right. Like, if it was going to be made on that scale, it would be, like, a Warner Brothers or a Marvel kind of franchise spinoff or something yeah. like that. And it might and deal Ari with, Lester- like
3: – yeah, he's even built, maybe he's built up some cachet that he could maybe jump to something else, but, you know, he is still, in a way, very pigeonholed into a very specific type of movie, you know? He That's does, true. like, sort of horror movies um, about, like, you know, that there, he has a very particular sort of genre style. Not that I don't love his movies, I think Hereditary is great and probably one of the great Possession movies, like, up there with The Exorcist, but, uh, you know, uh, and Midsommar is good as well. Um, But yeah I think that It would be very different It's a very different trajectory To go from the French to The exorcist The sorcerer you know, it has a different kind of sensibility and like definitely a different type of. Uh, uh, not
2: freedom. to mention, uh, yeah, like cru- and then cruising after that, another one which we'll yeah. bring up a little later because it has yeah, a, sure. like a an actual yeah. homicidal connection to The Exorcist. Uh, yeah, 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 that's a d-
3: crazy link. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah.
2: So it's just yeah, being able to kind of like you know uh, being inspired because one of the bit players uh, in your previous blockbuster movie actually ended up being like a spree, a serial killer in like the New York underground gay leather scene, which then inspires you to make like a thriller about the underground gay leather scene and like Al Pacino going undercover in like chaps to like hunt a serial killer and like deal with the sexual like sexual confusion is like Mm -hmm. that's that is uh I'm here for that, you know, generally speaking. I think that's great, Mm -hmm. but nowadays it's gotta be much more mediated by like uh like what's the IP? Like are you gonna do a franchise? And if you get if you get pigeonholed into doing one type of movie, you're most of the time going to be unless you have a really successful breakthrough, like say Jordan Peele had with get out where he went from being like a comedy guy to now he's kind of like the woke horror with a bend of comedy. Like he's built this little space, this lane for himself and now he's allowed to do like a million things, but, but still in that lane and like you can't uh, pivot around because uh, so much in Hollywood is based upon like what you've done before. That's kind of the only proof of like your abilities or that people will put up money for is like, Oh, you did this thing. So then it's logical that you go on to do a franchise that's like in the same lane. And then, you know, so it, it it makes it a little tougher to have like a really uh, eclectic uh, filmography.
3: Yeah. You know what it is? I think like uh, this might just be a restatement uh, perhaps a crystallization of what I said before, which is that they're like in, for instance, Jordan Peele's movies, the like, ho- like a supernatural or like frightful or like, uh, you know, monstrous element is a metaphor, and like the metaphor is very heavy handed and very obvious. Um, <laughs> whereas like in uh, The Exorcist, for instance, it's treated as something that is like actually real. Uh, you know, I think that he said like he made the movie as like a believer in demonic possession, and yes. that is a perspective that is not. Like, you know, the idea of this not as a metaphor, like as something that, you know, might be an expression of uh, other things, but actually like a related phenomenon rather than a metaphor for it is uh something that is not really uh normative any longer uh in a lot of these like uh horror films that uh, you see now there might be like some exceptions uh but you know that's yeah i I don't really
2: i i have to confess i i really don't watch any of them like any like the paranormal activity or like anything from like the kind of 2000s onward that's like a you know just I don't know, like any movie you could kind of think of like, uh, the haunting of this or like Annabelle or like La Llorona mm-hmm. or something like, uh, it's just like, they're all have like the same aesthetic, like kind of like a ring aesthetic and like mm-hmm, creepy of, poster yeah. and like a creepy girl who's a ghost who just goes like in a, in a really fake CGI way, just goes like Bleh! into the camera and it's mm-hmm. like, Oh no, <laughs> you know, it's just like, really, and I think in those movies, like they, they do believe they do treat it as it's real, but it almost loses its meaning because in the exorcist, part of like the what's great about it, I think, is that it it treats it as it's real, but also goes through all of like the doubting of it and doesn't like it doesn't kind of shoot its shot too early and just be like, "Uh, it's all real. And then have the characters just believing it. You know, she goes through all these like psycho psychiatric examinations and medical things, and she gets hypnotized and like, they go to these doctors and it's mm-hmm. actually only when the doctors say, well, there might be one other solution, you know, and they bring up exorcism. And then even the mm-hmm. priest, who's like a trained psychologist, uh, doesn't want anything to do with it and thinks it's ridiculous. And it's like only at the very, very end you know, you're really like with father Karis when it kind of dawns on him that like, you know, this, and it's deeply personal because he's having a crisis of faith the entire movie and kind of, you know, feeling guilty about like his mother who got put in a, like a nursing home. And, uh, and, you know, it feels bad because like as a priest, he went off to like, you know, uh, live in Washington, D.C. and like take a job there. And uh, and he doesn't have any money, which like his Greek uncle, like, you know, sort of, jud- you know, uh, insults him a little bit for and saying like, you, know, you could have been a doctor, but then you could become a priest, eh, you know. And so they don't have any money to like put his mom, you know, somewhere else. So it's like a real dramatic arc that this guy goes through where like even the priest He's almost the biggest disbeliever in a way because he doesn't get to see Reagan until later Mm -hmm. and he's in this mode of like modern kind of scientific materialist thinking and like he's not feeling his faith anymore and so it is like meaningful at the end when you know it ends up being real instead of just being like uh, some kind of cartoon bullshit that is meant to like give you a jump scare
3: Yeah, it's an interesting comparison to like the Conjuring movies, which I think you mentioned when you mentioned Annabelle, like that's like that is like a franchise where and it is an interesting uh, sort of uh, juxtaposition because in that movie, it is like it has a sort of franchise component where Ed and Lorraine Warren of Amityville horror fame, which is a movie that really probably wouldn't have been made or as popular if it weren't for The Exorcist. You know, in that series of films, they are kind of like the recurring superheroes, and there's sort of this touchstone of the focus. It's it's very different, like type of approach, where I almost don't think that it really has the same thing. Where this is again, there's a documentarian sensibility, where uh, there's kind of supposed to be a sense of treating. I think that they do this is still treated uh, a bit more seriously and a bit with a bit more belief. Because I do think the Conjuring movies, in a way, even though they do kind of fictionalize the lives of real people, real uh, paranormal investigators Ed Lurie and Warren, they it is like a fantasy world, like a Warner Brothers dark universe or whatever you mm-hmm. know, like or exactly. something like that. You know, yeah. like it's a compartmentalized like world. Like we're not necessarily meant to accept that the movies of the Conjuring take place in our universe. They take place in the Conjuring universe, where even like if, you know even Annabelle, if, like often... you know.
2: Yeah, even if um, as they often do, they, they market themselves as like based on real events or based on a true story. Yeah, well but that's a, a kind like of a perfunctory.
3: Like, like literally every horror movie now is based on a on a true events, which I guess mm-hmm. like you could say about anything that is based on true events like, you know, uh like it's uh very poor like response. it's very easy. Yeah, exactly um but yeah they all take place in like you know there's even like a, a museum that the warrens have in their house which has like all the different paraphernalia like the the annabelle doll and stuff like that and it's like tune in next time for like the movie about like the haunted lamp or, like tune in next time <laughs> for the movie about the haunted like record player you know and like uh yeah it's, yeah it's always it like oh, can you pick up on it. the little links you know it's the same sort of like it's really a marvelification Of, like, something that is superficially similar, where they do deal with possession, they do deal with demons, et cetera. It Um, it doesn't
2: have – because I think what's, like, undergirding the whole exorcist is it does take this very, like you said, like, documentarian, uh, immediate, like, 70s realist auteur approach to, like, a mm -hmm. subject matter that probably wouldn't have been – Given, you know, I mean, compared to like The French Connection, which is like it's a cop thriller dealing with, you know, uh, criminal conspiracies and corruption and like very serious topics. And then he goes to like this thing, but he still keeps like the same gritty, like on the ground, um, like, you know, 70s realist kind of sensibility with it. Like he doesn't dress it up as like this wacky. I mean, he puts his flourishes on it, but he still does it from a very, um, you know, from like the same perspective kind of. And so he lends it a lot more and it's more uncomfortable because like these two things in a way, maybe like generically in cinema are kind of like not supposed to be, we don't want our seventies gritty realist conspiracy thrillers to be, you know, mixed up with this woo woo exorcism, demonic possession stuff. Like that's for Mm -hmm. silly horror movies, you know? And so he kind of dared to like combine these two things together and you know, it, it, it caught fire. Yeah, it
3: worked. I think he even said, like, in making the French Connection, he wanted it to feel like, you know, a camera had just happened to drop in on these real events. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, he talked
2: like about his DP. I forget the guy's name, but he said that he would he, – this guy was such an instinctual documentary. Oh, yeah, the, the, his DP, like, ran with Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and the rebels in, like, 1959 and, like, shot documentary footage of the entire Cuban Revolution,
1: Mm-hmm. which is yeah, another
2: fascinating right. thing. I wanted to like read a little more about that guy. So this guy, um, I forget um, if he was actually Cuban or not, or like how he ended up in America. But um, but yeah, in the, the Leap of Faith documentary, there's like archival footage of like uh, Fidel and Che and stuff. So this guy like was in, you know, military, you know, guerrilla warfare, like urban revolutionary settings. And that's where he cut his teeth as like an action documentary filmmaker and William Friedkin said that typically his way of working would be to just completely light the scene completely set everything up not let the dp mm-hmm. on set at all and then like right when they were about to record he would just like bring him in and be like all right go for it and then he would just figure out like the angles intuitively and uh yeah you know he I didn't, think
3: like yeah Friedkin like doesn't believe in like a take two or whatever you know he would always be like no I'm just gonna do everything in one take like takes her for cowards or whatever. Uh yes, yes, Yeah, he revealed like uh in one documentary I watched about him a uh, leap of faith it was particularly about the exorcist. He talked about like some of the very like bizarre and extremely questionable techniques that he used in making the movie. Like he mm-hmm. would uh like just fire a gun off to like frighten the actors to get like a real response of fear from them. Like uh yeah. in the scene where like Karis is like in, in his apartment and his phone rings. And he's, mm-hmm. like, startled by the phone, like, uh, what actually he heard, uh, the, you know, what the actor, actor actually heard was, like, a gunshot. Uh, yeah. And uh, in the scene, I guess, where the priest is giving Carrie's his last rites after he dies, you know, spoiler alert for the exorcist, um, he, like, uh, you know, that guy, I guess, was a real priest, and he couldn't yes. really cry, so William Friedkin just, like, punched him in the face, Uh he said, like, do you trust
2: me? Do you trust me? And like he's like, You know I love you, right? And he's like, Yeah, yeah, Bill. And he's like, and you trust (laughs) me, right? He's like, sure I do. And then just like smacks him across the face and like shoves him in front of the camera and is like, we're rolling. And I guess that's how he got the guy to like cry at the end. Um great that that actor was great though. That that real priest, I mean, he was like a real, like suave Jesuit, um Mm -hmm. you know, playing the piano and stuff.
0: Everything has to do with the mystery of fate or faith. And The Exorcist is about the mystery of faith. I knew exactly how I wanted to make it. I marked up my own copy of the hardcover I didn't want any backstory, no flashbacks, just a straight-ahead story that was done as realistically as possible. Over the decades, it's been interpreted and reinterpreted. Many people look at the ending of the film as ambiguous doesn't appear to have been a problem for the millions of people who've seen the film. They accept what we showed. It asks for a total leap of faith on the part of the audience.
3: It's uh, it's definitely well cast, um, but uh, yes, it's uh, it definitely has uh, a very uh, different sensibility. One uh, interesting aspect of that, I think, is the opening sequence, uh, which I guess uh, you know there's been some sort of controversy around. I think that even William Peter Blatty had like talked about cutting it, and mm-hmm. I think the studio like didn't really want it or something, uh, and. Uh, because uh, something's always intrigued me about The Exorcist because it's such a pivotal movie in, uh, you know, the uh, understanding of the occult and, like, the, you know, American consciousness and, as I said, like, really the global consciousness at this point. Um, -hmm. and, uh, looking at the rest of Freakin's oeuvre in terms of sorcerer and, uh, you know, the rules of engagement particular, it's very interesting to me that like the first sound you hear in the movie is the call to prayer. Right Uh, over the title
2: words of the exorcist. When the title card comes on, you hear, you know, Allahu Akbar, Mm -hmm. um, Right. right away. Yeah.
3: In the, I watched like some, like the extended director's cut version, uh, before this, which I guess maybe has like some. Different images before that uh, of like the statue of the Virgin Mary, uh, but at, in that version at the very end of the movie. You also hear the call to prayer. It was, uh, it was very funny mm. hearing William Friedkin like repeat, like try to do the call to prayer in like a documentary interview with him. Cause you know he'd be like, "Allahu <laughs> ah, Akbar. like no, <laughs> we don't do it on that syllable. But he, he uh, did like, really.
2: He did really travel to I think somewhere around Mosul in Iraq to yeah, shoot mm. that opening scene, though, which is uh, you know yeah. another thing that would not happen today. No, I think even not. with Netflix money. Uh, yeah, um, some of the things he yeah. was able to get them to do, you know, instead of just going out to the Mojave Desert and putting up some fake columns or whatever, um, right? Real, yeah, the real. They I like mean, they he shot. Nineveh, uh, yeah, the yeah, Nineveh and Nebuchadnezzar's think, but it's uh, to be
3: Nineveh. Yeah, um, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar's
2: tomb is in the background of one of the shots.
3: Mm-hmm, yeah, and I think yeah, it's like again that sort of uh, it definitely has a documentary uh, kind of feel because I think that a lot of what he filmed is just like actual like, uh, dudes, like, you know, around, uh, that city. Um, mm-hmm. and there's sort of like this, yeah, this very sort of, uh, Orientalist, uh, ambiance at the beginning, you know, the idea that, you know, you said like turning over the rocks, like of America at the beginning, uh, you know, or earlier. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's literally, you know, what happens in the film where like, there's sort of this, uh, idol is on earth. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. kind of, it's implied that that's what causes this, somehow halfway around the world there's some kind of connection between these mm-hmm. events and i find the connection between uh the middle east and by you know the the quote-unquote middle east and by association like with is, islam in particular the uh you know you hear the call to prayer you see muslims uh you know at prayer i believe uh, earlier in the movie um and uh yeah i think that that kind of you know that feeds into a lot of what he dealt with later, in particular in the rules of engagement, and uh, it's something that I think we see bearing itself out now. In uh, I mean, of course, I wouldn't say that he has full responsibility for this, uh, and I think that he was channeling associations that have very, very deep roots, uh, mm-hmm. and that uh, you know have then blossomed further uh, in the future. But the association between uh, this kind of discourse, like whether it's around exorcism or even just around the occult in general around demonic possession, the association of that with Islam, or maybe even like uh, Islam as a uh, like token or a synecdoche of taking religion seriously, you know, like Islam is a serious religion that, mm-hmm. you know, Christianity in some way, you know, the world of serious religion as the world of Islam. And like, if you're taking Catholicism seriously, that's like Islamic in some way uh, mm-hmm. that we kind of see borne out like around nine eleven, where it's seen as a sort of spiritual challenge you know, and we have this whole thing of, like, being a moderate Muslim, where, like, if you're not moderate, then, like, you know, uh, things like that, where, you know, and I, I mean, it may very well mm-hmm. be true that, uh, on the average, Muslims don't their religion maybe more seriously. I, I don't really know, like, how you could possibly quantify that, but it's certainly a perception, where, like, uh, in order to deal with this sort of primeval subject, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we see Islam being invoked, um, and, uh, you know, the uh, you know, the idea of, of God is kind of, uh, brought in through the call to prayer right away. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Something, something foreign and, uh,
3: yeah. And some serious. like foreign contagion. Yeah. And like the meddling almost, or the, di- you know, I guess the digging, uh, I guess, uh, the father Marin, uh, Max mm-hmm. von Sidow is sort of involved mm-hmm. in this somehow. Um, yeah, I, uh, uh I guess that, you know, uh, the icon of Pazuzu that they uh, sort of that classic shot of him sort of staring across the dunes or the rocks Mm -hmm. to see that giant idol of Pazuzu. That is like something that they made, I guess, because I read a very interesting, uh, you know, uh, line about Pazuzu uh, from, uh, I guess, an art historian uh, who works on uh, Mesopotamia. She said, uh, you know, well... Normally, like, you know, Pazuzu is a real uh, uh, demon or being or a real entity, uh, you know, that there actually are sort of representations of. But usually it's very small uh, because it has like an apotropaic effect. There actually is a line in the movie where uh, Father Marin is kind of fondling a tiny head of Pazuzu. And uh, I guess maybe his advisor says something like, uh, shaitan al-harib shaitan, like, you know, Satan against Satan. And that's kind of Mm -hmm. the idea that it's like a prophylactic demon that will like our gargoyle in a way that will scare away, um, you know, uh, more evil forces. Uh, But the art historian uh, that uh, whose idea I read was that, um, you know, to create uh, a Pazuzu uh, from, you know, the Mesopotamian point of view to create like a Pazuzu figure of that scale as they did for the movie would be very dangerous, uh, because that would sort of invoke, uh, mm. you know, him on, uh, you know, uh, on too great a scale, you know, that's part of the reason why he's so small, maybe to contain his power to, in order to wield it, uh, but to create him on that, on that scale, uh, would be, uh, dangerous, Um, which is interesting in light of, you know, the sort of serial killer uh, that was brought into kind of the orbit of the movie, or I guess, you know, the, uh, I'm not sure if he's been confirmed to have been a serial killer, but at least a murderer. Um,
2: He killed at least one person. Yeah, exactly. And I am just looking at like, you know, there is, there is a little entry on Wikipedia about Pazuzu and uh, you're right that, yeah, he was the king of the demons of the wind. Um, And I guess, His main purpose uh, was he was invoked in um, apotropaic amulets, uh, which combat the powers of his rival, the malicious goddess Lamashtu, who is believed to cause harm to mother and child during childbirth. Although Pazuzu is himself considered to be an evil spirit, he drives and frightens away other evil spirits, therefore protecting humans against plagues and misfortunes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, he, yeah, seems like a dangerous god, but kind of one that you keep around to protect you from other bad gods yeah exactly yeah so like a very uh, tenuous uh, alliance right there from the get-go yeah exactly K'zuzu. cotton mather
3: would not approve you know going to the devil for help against the devil uh no, but that's what they not. did in, in mesopotamia <laughs> uh yeah it was uh exactly kind of a um you know uh detente between these these two uh, demonic entities uh Mm-hmm. that yeah, they would like harness his power. But yeah, part of it is even to make him on a small scale because it's the only way that he can kind of be contained and used for that purpose. Um, because to make him on that large scale would be would be dangerous. Um mm. Yeah, and you know, of course like uh, the demons kind of indwell these idols are in a way the demons are kind of ontologically they are uh the idols. Like, you know, they, they inhabit them and in fact like are them or they manifest like really as being uh, whatever, you know, they're created. So, and that sort of, and, uh, you know, that's a pretty common ancient concept, I guess. I, you know, that's kind of what I guess the the Quraysh believed before Muhammad, a lot of them. And, uh, you know, the Egyptians have similar ideas. Uh, so, you know, to create, like, an idol, um, you know, that is in a way, that is the the entity that uh, kind of alights upon it, um, in a, you know, in a lot of uh, cosmologies, including, I think. Uh, the one yeah. that sort of invoked here. Yeah.
2: Um, I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a, there is a, uh, there in some museum here, uh, oh, in the Louvre, uh, there is a, a statue, a statuette, like he said accurately, mm-hmm. uh, a tiny one of Pazuzu, um, it had an inscription on it and it's from the first millennium BC. Um, And uh, I noticed that it's doing the uh, as below, as above, so below uh, hand thing that Mm -hmm. uh, Baphomet does, where he's got one arm kind of aimed up and the other one pointed down. Um, And the inscription says, I am Pazuzu, son of Hanpa, king of the evil spirits of the air, which issues violently from mountains, causing much havoc.
1: <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah. Uh, so a lot of yeah, things that that involving sense.
2: wind, uh, which is kind of maybe the the open windows in Reagan's room in The Exorcist, uh, and also mm-hmm. the uh, the opening scene where uh, Max von Sydow is sort of like f- facing off against Pazuzu and there's this mm-hmm. great the amalgamation.
3: Yeah,
2: I I thought that uh, was a really like from just like a, I don't know a craft standpoint, like a really excellent scene where it's kind of layering in all of these diegetic sounds from the natural world around him which is basically, like, a, a bunch of stray dogs start, like, viciously fighting with each other very loudly, and then the mm-hmm. win- a windstorm suddenly, like, kicks up, and none of these things, like, by themselves are super natural, but, the, like, the, like, overwhelming way that Freakin, like, lays them in, and then, like, uh, cuts back to, like, this, like, zoom-in shot of Pazuzu where it's, like, <laughs> <laughs> and, like, this yeah. crazy wind and stuff is, like, absolutely terrifying, and then they're standing on these kind of, you know, uh, uh, on these rocks like facing each other and the wind mm-hmm. is like absolutely like blowing all over the place so I mean Friedkin definitely uh had the right idea about Pazuzu um, yeah or I, I guess that, that uh, the Blatty did Blatty did right yeah,
3: yeah yeah he yeah I assume that Blatty must have done and I I think that Friedkin was pretty scrupulous so he must have been you know curious enough to make sure that he did their research and I think that they were in very close communication while they're making the movie and it was Blatty's script and everything Um, but, uh, yeah. And I mean, Friedkin was a big stickler about having that opening part. So he, it meant a lot to him Mm -hmm. and he understood the, the importance of it and the significance of, of having that, uh, you know, which a lot of people, uh, even forget about or are sort of, uh, confused by, uh, when they see the movie, you know, expecting, you know, the classic stuff that we see in like Reagan's bedroom and everything uh yeah yeah you would have thought the opening shot
2: is like the priest with like you know getting dropped off outside of the house with the lone light yeah exactly like like that's the opening of the movie but yeah Yeah, that happens like literally like an hour and a half into it
3: -hmm. yeah (laughs) Um, yeah not not remotely yeah um and uh yeah i think that uh there's uh yeah um there's a, there's a lot of, like, uh, interesting stuff in terms of, like, the the way that it's, uh, the, the sort of subtlety of uh, how these things are. Yeah, like you said, like, the things sort of together, uh, you know, on their own maybe wouldn't imply anything. But, like, in the, in the way that they're combined, they have this sort of uh, eerie sense, but you can't quite pin it down. I appreciate mm-hmm. that aspect of the movie because there's something, that's something that I think we've kind of talked about a lot in the podcast in terms of, like, Uh, discourses around, like, uh, evidence and, like, science. Like, that's really much, Mm. like, dealt with uh, very heavily, like, in the film. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a great line where, uh, you know, uh, Father Karras first comes to sort of talk to Reagan or to Pazuzu. um, And, uh, you know, he says, like, uh, why don't you... She's like, you know, do undo these straps or whatever. He's like, well, you know, if you're really the devil, why don't you make the straps disappear? And she says, like, much too vulgar a display, mm-hmm. of, power a display Harris, of power you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is, you know, a concept that, like, we've returned to a lot in terms of talking about, like, well, why isn't there any proof of this? Like, that's something that's, like, part and parcel of it, and that's a very old concept that I think he uses, like, very, uh, you know, effectively. Like, there's even a, a scene which is very, uh, you know, really, I think, responds to this kind of approach to things where uh, uh, the drawer next to, uh, in Reagan's nightstand next to her bed slides open and -hmm. father Kara says like did you do that and yeah she uh you know nods and says like "Mm -hmm," like in mercedes mccambridge's like horrifying voice which is another (laughs) uh interesting aspect of this but um like uh you know and he's like we'll do it again you know if you if you did that do it again and and you know uh, she just is like in time you know like uh (laughs) and and, like what refuses to to do it again you know refuses to to offer the proof or whatever even though of course uh You know, everything that is done, like, you know, that they witness is pretty uh, incontrovertible proof of of the reality of this. But, uh, you know, in a way, there's still no way to really prove what happened. Like it avoids that kind of, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, analysis uh, or that sort of paradigm of of understanding. Um, Which is it's
2: an interesting and important dynamic whenever we're talking about any kind of like uh, occulted power uh, moving around, whether it's, you know. Corporeal and human or not is its desire to remain occulted and like how its effectiveness is rooted in people not believing it, you know, again, mm-hmm. like the cliche, like greatest trick the ever devil ever pulled, you know, is that nobody mm-hmm. believes in him. So there has mm-hmm. to be a kind of um, there has to be a kind of veil of disbelief uh, in order to maybe, you know, work its way into the cracks there where people can't handle The idea that it would be real and almost like it. it, But then people think, well, like, why? Why isn't there more obvious proof of them doing this? And it's like, well, you know, like, why isn't there like a literal picture of like George H.W. Bush, like filling his trunk with like kilos of cocaine or something, you Mm. know what I mean? And it's like, well, like they're not going to do that because that undercuts the it's it seems almost too simple like that's going to that they're not going to make it uh easy for you mm-hmm. but you know that i don't know um you know that's a broad category of just like concealing bad activities but um but for some reason we seem to think that if something's like super super bad then there's going to be like evidence of it everywhere and it's not going to be mm-hmm. ambiguous and if it's ambiguous it's probably false and mm, I think
3: we yeah, we try to
2: push back on that, you know.
3: Yeah, there are definitely, especially when you're dealing with, like, subtle worlds and, and aspects of, like, Jan uh, or, uh, you know, uh, subtle uh, aspects of reality, like some or uh, uh, sort of miraculous or maybe what you might call psionic uh, activity or things like that. I think that, you know, that aspect of subtlety, like, there is never going to be the whole idea of, like, you know, where's the proof? Like, it's ne- I don't think that's ever truly going to be satisfied. It even takes into our, our conversation about Bigfoot, perhaps. You know, like, this whole, <laughs> like, problem. Like, we just need to get past this because... And, like, uh, get back to, like, a, uh, you know, a paradigm of experience. Because that's, like... And I think that, uh, you know, I also watch Freakin's documentary, um, The Devil and Father of Morth, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about... Uh, you know catholic priest i guess who you know was at the uh, time of the movie like uh the main exorcist in rome uh you know the, yeah. the main guy for exorcism in, in the vatican um yeah i guess he died shortly after the, the film was made but it's sort of uh it uh it shows a like it was reported to be a real exorcism um and uh you know you can see the woman sort of uh it. there's lots of interesting aspects of this documentary. Uh, That, you know, uh, it's hard to say, like, the woman's voice when she's possessed, like, yeah, this actually is a great example, because Mm -hmm. it's really ambiguous in a way, because you want to trust, like, why would William Friedkin, like, lie? Why not just not release this movie? Uh, The voice is very impressive and very sinister and scary, but it also sounds a lot like an audio chorusing effect, (laughs) Um, mm. and so you're just like, i did you put an audio chorusing effect in this woman's voice to like make it sound more demonic? Um, you know, or like so through the medium of film, like, you know, you can't in a way, you're seeing like this, you know, something that's very impressive as proof. Uh, you know, but you can't really,, um, you know, uh, you can't really take it at face value because there's always mm. the possibility of manipulation um and uh yeah but in that film you know he talks actually to a lot of doctors and psychiatrists and what even they say is that you know regardless of their assessment of the exorcism a lot of them are just like well you know i can't really say what it is and they acknowledge that it's not really possible to determine what the nature of it is but when they encounter this type of thing a lot of the time they do they're able to you know take a cultural approach to it and uh Mm -hmm. you know intercept it as and appreciate it as exorcism you know or as possession um without you know they can do their job without necessarily having to um you know they they say without necessarily having to uh deal with these ontological claims i think that might hmm. be like kind of uh fraught but you know they do acknowledge that like uh at the, they have to operate at the level of experience where they have to kind of treat this as possession because it's being experienced in that way anyway um yeah
2: absolutely you know
3: i do think that absolutely. the question of the reality of it like does have some importance however like you know, even uh, they acknowledge that if they can't answer these sort of evidentiary questions, they can still operate at that experiential level. But um, yeah, so yeah. I think that that's something that needs to be kind of, uh, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting done in the movie. Yeah, uh, another interesting thing is the sort of, I read that the, the like uh the test that they do on reagan where they like you know uh put a like a needle into the back of her skull like that very kind of graphic scene yeah yeah uh you know apparently that's like was a real procedure at the time and is like you know uh according to william friedkin has been used like uh as like an educational film for like radiology technicians uh, yeah well so, because yeah. That,
2: That's because it, it was actually Real technicians I think at like NYU Medical Center who mm-hmm. he He had gone there for like a, An exhibition he asked If he could watch one of these procedures And he watched it and he Was so impressed with the Kind of uh, the the I don't know just the, the way that The medical technicians you know Were handling it that he wanted These exact people to be Like in yeah. his movie and do it and then, of course, one of those people that right, has yeah. a few lines. Uh, what what was his name again?
3: Uh, Paul Bateson. Paul Bateson. Paul
2: Bateson, who appears in this this very memorable scene, went on a few years later to be a killer, like a murderer. Um, yeah. In New York City, and actually, then became the personal inspiration, like I said earlier, for William Friedkin's 1980 movie *Cruising*, um, mm-hmm. yeah. which was b- based, uh, kind of based on a novel, kind of like *Cobra*, like technically based on a novel, but really based on something really deep and personal <laughs> that it mm-hmm. happened. Um, but uh, but it's basically yeah, it was a, it was a. Uh, Uh, There was a novel by Gerald Walker about a serial killer targeting gay men in Manhattan, particularly those associated with the leather scene. And um, and that was. uh, Yeah,
3: Yeah, that was assumed to be him. He definitely murdered one guy, at least like, you know, it's very well established that he murdered one dude, Addison Verrill. Um, And uh, yeah, he was a reporter who covered the film industry for Variety um and uh he was beaten and stabbed um but you know he wasn't robbed um and uh you know no evidence of forced entry etc etc um and uh yeah eventually it was determined that it was this dude and he eventually uh you know like there had been kind of serial killings of gay men at the time and he mm-hmm. became to be suspicious of them um and uh, sus- uh, suspected of them that is um mm-hmm. and uh he, uh, yeah, like, uh, apparently he had kind of boasted of them, I think, in, uh, in prison or something. I'm not sure, I'm trying to remember why, or, you know, I had to look up why. Uh, in, yeah, in that, jail. You know, but, I mean, he brought
2: it up as, at his sentencing. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, at the time, according to Wikipedia, at the time of Bateson's arrest, police had also been investigating a series of murders of gay men over the previous two years, which they believe were committed by the same person due to similarities in the killings. Uh, six corpses of men had been found dismembered in bags floating in the Hudson River. None of them had ever been identified, but police traced the clothes on them to shops in Greenwich Village uh, that catered Mm -hmm. to the gay community. Since bags reportedly had wording on them connected to the uh, NYU MC's neuropsychiatric unit, oh, I see, Mm -hmm. the dismemberment of the bodies appeared to have been done by someone skilled in using a knife. Investigators began to suggest publicly that Bateson might be a suspect in, as they were officially uh, referred to, the C-U-P-P-I killings for circumstances unknown pending police investigation.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I
2: I, I see the New York Times wrote about this in 1979 uh, and they, uh, at his sentencing, he like, this was brought up. uh, It says, yeah, Paul Bates and the convicted murder of Addison Verrill was sentenced yesterday 20 years to life, and the prosecutor in the case told the judge that Mr. Bateson had boasted to an acquaintance that Mr. Bateson had also killed other men. According to the Uh. prosecutor, William Hoyt, the 37-year-old Mr. Bateson told the acquaintance, Richard Ryan, who had been a witness at the trial, that he liked to kill, and he had dismembered the bodies of an unspecified number of victims, stuffed them into garbage bags, and dumped them into the Hudson River. Um, And... uh, Let's see. Uh, and asking Justice Goldman for the maximum sentence, Mr. Hoyt, the prosecutor said of Mr. Bateson, "He is a psychopath." As to the identities of other possible victims, Mr. Hoyt said he had no evidence. Among unsolved murders uh, where bodies were found disposed in the fashion reportedly described by Mr. Bateson are six cases in which the police suspect the victims were homosexuals. The mutilated bodies, all unidentified, were found during the last two years in the Hudson River and the police have traced the clothing to Greenwich Village shops that cater to homosexuals. Mr. Bateson testified to having had a homosexual encounter with Mr. Verrill before crushing his head with a metal skillet and then stabbing him in the heart, Um, which pretty much happens in Cruising in one of the scenes. Um, You know, there's a... uh, there there is like a serial killer who basically sounds a lot like him uh that that was another interesting movie in another way i mean it's not the he made several about serial killers kind of over over the years Mm -hmm. this is probably the first one but kind of very i also didn't realize that he had directed um the boys in the band which was just i think remade by either amazon or netflix which was uh i didn't
3: realize that either until, yeah no, like now, the,
2: it right um, I, I had no idea even in the promotion yeah, for this it, it took wasn't me like, a
3: while to convince you that he did the rules of engagement i was like yes he made that movie it's like you know <laughs> uh yeah um uh, yeah but, so, yeah, there's yeah some so, yeah, weird parts yeah he go-
2: but you know so very, very wow yeah very kind of forward, forward at, at the Exodus, time yeah, yeah but very, kind connection. Of, yeah exactly very forward at the time Well, it's kind of cut both ways, because on the one hand, it is this, uh, you know, back when I think, you know, gay stories uh, in American cinema were still pretty marginal. I mean, queer cinema itself was... Uh-huh. Was like pretty marginal overall. This is William Friedkin taking like a big swing at making this like gritty kind of cop thriller about the serial killer and but really kind of delved into like the leather scene in the late 70s. And I think it is like a fascinating artifact of that culture, like right on the precipice before AIDS showed up. And the mm-hmm. kind of scene that was, like, alive in Greenwich Village and Manhattan at that time. And also watching, like... Uh, I, I feel like it's a little bit of a bummer that the movie... I feel like if it was made today... Uh, and I don't think it would be made today. <laughs> but, like, uh, Al Pacino's, like, sexual frust- sexual kind of confusion would be, like, amped up way more. But it still mm. plays with it. It's like a subtext of Definitely. the entire movie. There's a, the mm. one scene where he's, like, you know... He goes to, like, the... Um, I think it was the Mineshaft. Uh, they actually shot at a yeah. place called the Hellfire Club, which is a leather bar. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, Hellfire Club has like really sus uh, origins. But um, but yeah, where yeah, they're I kind of the playing this like. Fl- wasn't.
3: Yeah, like. I think that was a site of some of the real pickup killings or at least it was yeah. yeah
2: but they wouldn't let Friedkin uh shoot in it because they objected to kind of the content of it they didn't want mm-hmm. a movie to be made and yeah, uh there was
3: a big controversy a lot of gay people were upset about it at the time uh yes you know, exactly
2: um, and, yeah. um, and actually, you know, he, it, for his research, he worked with the mafia, who at the time owned many of the city's gay bars. And, um, and so, you know, he was able to, to shoot somewhere. But yeah, there's like scenes where, you know, they're playing this kind of like thumping, like village people kind of disco beats and like, Al Pacino's dressed up in like his leather out for the first time. And he just starts like whiling out of the dance floor and like is having so much fun. <laughs> and it's just like, mm-hmm. I don't know, but the movie kind of pulls back from it a little bit and it's like, eh, he's not really gay, but, uh, or, you know, maybe he's like, he's, he's bi-curious or something. But, uh, but that movie did get a lot of shit and I, I don't think he wanted, I, I think he saw this as like, it would be like a pro LGBT movie, But it was not perceived in that way by the, at least the LGBT community in New York at the time, who I think boycotted the movie.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like he had a similar, like, kind of nonplussed attitude about it as he did with Rules of Engagement, which, you know, has been called one of the most, like, anti-Arab or, like, Islamophobic movies ever uh Mm -hmm. but he was just like how could it be you know in order to make the movie we had to get permission from the king of morocco so obviously nothing is wrong you know like it was the same (laughs) kind of like sort of like i was just making a movie about you know the military war you know like he just sort of like has this weird like you know uh i I think he even said something uh that i I, in one of the documentaries i watched of, of actual, you know interviews with him where he said like i don't like politics i don't like politicians you know i don't put politics in my movies, like, uh, again, so we got that old grateful deadline, like, we're not political, man, yeah, exactly, but of course, they're all, like, very eminently political, uh, you know, uh, and even The Exorcist, I I would say, has a a political character to it, um, as, you know, a lot of films do, um, you know, they, you know, through their Mm Their
2: particularly in this decade. Um, I mean even Jaws had like a little bit of a political corruption angle where like the mayor yeah. wanted to keep the city the, the beach open to make money and even mm-hmm. though people were getting eaten by the shark, you know, there was like all kinds of stuff uh, in the 70s where almost everybody was like painting in those colors to some degree. So I don't quite believe that, you know, I think a lot of it's a very common refrain. Like I'm not political. You hear uh, up to today, you hear like, you know, like a Tarantino say, I'm not political, you know? And I feel like ultimately that can only kind of be a, a cop out or just like an understandable, but unfortunate, um, uh, attempt to like not have to deal with that, not to get into the weeds and like almost to protect your artistic brain, you have to like pretend that you're not being political because right, if you start thinking yeah. about like all the implications of every choice you make, then you just end up mm-hmm. kind of like paralyzed or start making bad artistic decisions because you are so focused on the, and, and, you know, they they were all kind of like ambiently brainwashed that like, you know, uh, political art is like, you know, communist and dead and lifeless and right, like, American yeah. art is vital and like shoots from the hip and it's all about feeling and affect. And yeah, uh, exactly.
3: Yeah, I think that that's kind of like you know. what it was like, you know, I just need to get into the mind of this. I'm just going to make a movie about this, like, you know, and I'm not going to think about like the, the repercussions, you know, I'm getting in the head of Jim Webb or into the head of, <laughs> you know, this guy, Paul Bateson, I guess, uh, or, you know, uh, like getting into that environment, uh, cause he actually went and like interviewed him after the fact, you know, and talked to him, try to get like ideas about, uh, cruising, you know, he would go to that guy, Paul Bateson, who
2: really in, probably, when he was in jail like, was,
3: yeah, exactly. He went and, like, talked to him uh, to be like, why did you, why did you do this? What, you know, like, <laughs> like uh, that's another thing about, like, William Friedkin is that, like, you know, uh, not to create more work for you, but I feel like you should, like, play a little bit of his voice in this because, to me, he sounds very, like, uncannily like Trump, like, a lot of the time. He has that same kind of, like, whiny... Like, uh, aspect to it where he'll just be, you know, make, like, uh, yeah, like, kind of that strained, like, the way that Trump will talk about, like, China, China, you know, like, we went here, (laughs) we went there, like, and we were making a movie about faith, you know, like, that's, like, how he sat, yeah, it's really, like, uh, to me... Oh, bizarre yeah like uh it, it the, didn't the jump
2: out at me quite yeah. as much but i i do see the kind of vibe because leap of faith movie is basically just kind of a one-shot interview in like his yeah. kind of like pal versailles style like mansion <laughs> yeah it's where a
3: crazy uh, old hollywood house where he's yeah. like this is a, a this print is from eisenstein Eisenstein was a genius. Wagner was a genius. You know, wh- what can you say? You know, these men were amazing filmmakers. Like that's like, you know, he, yeah, he's got that like, old an school reality, like mirror universe, Trump who like went to film school instead. And like, you know, will just be like, can you really say that treasure of the Sierra Madre is better then gone with the wind you can't you know like like, uh
2: no he's got the well he has like the same tenor of confidence in pretty much everything that he says like there's no Mm -hmm. wavering like he's already figured out how he feels about anything that he's talking about and has like his perspective on it. And it is, I mean, in content, uh, it is perhaps, you know, it's definitely more artistic minded, but it definitely has that like brash boomer kind of, um, you know, yeah. uh, like, I mean, uh, yeah, maybe Trump is kind of, like, a weird auteur in his own way.
3: <laughs> in a way, yeah, his own way. A he's
2: nebulous, serious, like, is, yeah. real estate celebrity, billionaire kind of guy who's mm. on reality TV, and, like, and that's a certain way. I mean, particularly if you're a director in Hollywood, you almost have to have a little bit of, like... Trumpian energy in you to get your way and to not get chewed up and spat out you know a lot of these directors that are kind of like more I don't know maybe a little bit more sensitive or introverted seem to have gotten chewed up worse and spat out mm. by the early 80s whereas like Friedkin he took his lumps for sure like he took a lot of L's uh, I mean I, some of those L's in retrospect are, are kind of great like Sorcerer but like you know Cruising like did okay but he everyone hated him because like liberals hated him because of his debate. Of, like, the gay scene in New York, Uh, but then he just kind of kept on, like, kept on, you know, trucking, I guess, and uh, and bounced around and kind of, you know, I guess it might be a stretch to say that he bounced to like wildly different genres, they're all kind of like paranoid thrillers in some way, but some of them are like, you know, more cop based, some of them are, you know, uh. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are copies <laughs> to, to be honest, mm-hmm. but like, but also like, they're so different from kind of every other type of cop thing like that, you know, because of these other layers, he was like putting onto it, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, he like, like, I think we discussed in our Cobra episode, his, uh, his main, you know, cop movie from the eighties, uh, that came out a year before Cobra was to live and die in LA. And mm-hmm. even though that in some ways is like a prototypical, like eighties LA noir, um it still has like a level of like mood and weirdness and darkness to it that you don't necessarily find in like cobra or 48 hours or lethal weapon or any of those other big cop movies you know it is a uh, it's it's like a strange film uh given its relatively conventional plot
3: mm-hmm. yeah um uh but yeah, uh, no, that's a, a an interesting movie for sure. Um, yeah, the uh, and I think they actually made like real counterfeit dollars for that movie as well. Um,
2: doesn't surprise me at all. That Yeah, that gets into kind of the weird mystical things about, like, money and the art world yeah. and abstraction, like, the value mm-hmm. of abstraction and, right. like, the dangerous potential of, you know, it's almost like what Willem Dafoe is doing in To die, die in L.A. is a form of, like, sorcery or, like, alchemy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Like, he's an evil magician yeah. artist who is also like a criminal boss <laughs> like mastermind who loves mm-hmm. blasting people um and it's like incredibly psycho but uh but is like uh, you know tapping into something he he is kind of a sorcerer in a weird way
3: yeah uh this and then is m- what, yeah yeah uh this is what william freaking said by the way about uh paul bateson um he said uh about two or three years he told us to uh what website is this a movie uh, all right, uh, it's a notebook interview on movie.com. This is mm-hmm. where uh, he discusses Paul Bateson. Uh, about two or three years after The Exorcist came out, I'm reading the New York Times Daily News and I see Paul Bateson's picture in the paper. And there's a long story of how he's suspected of having murdered 89 people in SM clubs and down in downtown New York. His lawyer came, uh, his lawyer's name was in the article, and I called his lawyer. Bateson was at Rikers Island, which is a holding facility where he was awaiting trial. And I asked his lawyer if Bateson would see me. Word came back that he would. So I went to Rikers and I saw Paul Bateson. I asked him if he had murdered these people. And he said, you know, I remember murdering this one guy, Addison Burl, who was the Cedar critic for Variety. Bateson picked him up in a place uh, called the Mineshaft in Lower Manhattan, uh, mm-hmm. took him home. They took a lot of drugs, you know, the drill. And he wound up hitting him over the head with a frying pan, he remembered, and then cutting up and putting parts of Burl's body in body bags that were found in the East River. Though Bateson worked with a brain surgeon, he himself was not a brain surgeon because the body bags all had little indications that they were from the NYU Medical Center, and that's how the police tracked him. Bateson told him the story about the mineshaft, and it turned out that a friend of mine, Maddie Iannello, a big mafia figure who's still alive and nicknamed Maddie the Horse, owned all the S&M clubs in New York. In fact, he owned Stonewall, where gay liberation really started. I asked Maddie if he would give me permission to visit the mineshaft, and I did. At the same time, I knew a police detective named Randy Jurgensen who did what Pacino does in cruising. Jurgensen was sent into the SNM world to see if he could find the killer because he resembled most of the victims. That gave me the story of cruising. The confluence of Detective Jurgensen and what, and what he did, Paul Bateson, and a murder mystery set in that world that was never solved. What happened to Paul Bateson, as he told me at the time, was that the police offered him a deal. If he would confess to 8 or 12 of these murders, they would shorten his sentence. I said, why? He said... So he could get headlines that twelve unsolved murders were now solved. I said, "What are you gonna do?" He said, "I don't know. I'm not sure." He got out five years ago. Um, so that's what Friedkin says that this guy told him. People have like, uh, you know, actually kind of indicted Friedkin for, you know, representing this as being the case. Uh, um. You know, and maybe suggested that he created this kind of myth around cruising uh you know to promote his personal brand um <laughs> but that's you know what he says there's a really interesting article about him uh in, about paul bateson that is in the village voice that i think uh, is also possibly worth reading it's called a talk on the wild side uh, it's by arthur bell and it came out in 1977 this uh, article mm-hmm. um so uh this author writes the gold crucifix dangles from a chain around paul bateson's neck it was given to him by his mother, who had it blessed by Pope Pius XII in Rome. It is Whoa. the same cross Bateson wore when he was arrested September 23rd for the murder of Variety reporter Addison Verrill. Uh, I guess Fried can remembered it as being Burl, but it's actually Verrill. That mm-hmm. night, Bateson also wore the clothes he now wears in the visiting quarters of the men's house of detention at Rikers Island. A gray hooded sweatshirt, faded blue jeans, and work boots. But the outfit is clean. He has shaved off his beard in the frenzied... Agonized uh the frenzied, agonized look of an alcoholic suffering delirium tremens has been replaced by one of serenity. In the tiny glass cubicle where we sit under the watchful eye of a security guard, Paul Bateson resembles a priest in a confessional booth, except he'd rather talk than listen. Bateson had agreed to an interview provided there would be no tape recorder or camera. Although we had not met before, we had spoken on the phone. Bateson had called me to confess the killing. He didn't give his name, then But he told about the murder as if recounting the plot of a two-character play in which he and Vera were merely actors. At Rikers, we do not speak of the call. My guess is that Bateson's lawyer warned him to be cautious during our 90-minute meeting. At one point, Bateson mumbles, "I may have talked too much, but I don't think he knows, uh, or but I think he knows precisely what he's doing and talked just enough." He starts by barking when I ask if he is confined to the homosexual division of the prison. I'm not exclusively gay, he says. I just float in this world. It turns out he's housed in a cell block with 240 other men, five of whom are white and only one of whom, a guard, has made sexual advances. Each prisoner has his own cell with a toilet and sink facilities. Sleep comes between midnight and 5 a.m., the only hours it's quiet. Breakfast is served at 5.30, cold cereal or grits. After that, it's shower time. Bateson claims he'd never been arrested before. His chief gripe is that he's missing the Joffrey Ballet. Claustrophobia hasn't hit him yet. Although Rikers is not Silver Hill, Bateson is still using his confinement to dry out, build up, get in shape. He exercises, plays cards, watches cartoons, and baseball games on television. In a way, it's nice. You're on your own. Hardly any supervision. I'd welcome a little more discipline. Before his arrest, Bateson, who was 36, was uh, drinking a minimum of a quart of vodka a day. The alcohol mm. made him passive. During heavy drinking periods, he seldom left his Grand Village apartment. After a few shots, I'd shave and get dressed, and by the time I was ready to step into the world, I'd have consumed a quart and I'd had no energy left to move. Bateson's heavy drinking began when he was in the army, stationed in Germany. Because there was uh, not that much to do, when he was discharged, he dried out and returned to Lansdale, Pennsylvania, his hometown. In October 1964, he moved to New York. Within a month, he met a man who was, and is, quote, involved in music. According to Bateson, the relationship was quote, the days of wine and roses, a nine-year party during which enough alcohol was consumed to fill the Finger Lakes. I can't count the number of cocktail parties I went to at the Pierre. he says, or the number of times we had guests over to the apartment for drinks and dinner. I'm an excellent cook. When the relationship ended, Paul moved to the Borough Park section of Brooklyn and commuted to Manhattan, where he worked as a neuro x-ray technologist at NYU Medical Center. William Friedkin directed the Linder-Blair operation sequence of The Exorcist in the hospital's x-ray room. Bateson played a small part in the scene. It was sort of blade revenge on my father, since he would punish me by not allowing me to go to Sunday matinees or Saturday matinees when I was young. He made me stay at home and listen to opera on the radio. Bateson's father is a retired metallurgist who remarried after Bateson's mother died of stroke in 1969, (laughs) the same year his younger brother committed suicide. At this writing, Bateson does not know about his son's imprisonment. Wow. When not dressed in hospital w- white, Paul donned the costume of the pseudo-bikers who shop for earrings at the pleasure chest and shop around for studs on the e- at the eagle's nest. Leather impresses me. I never identify with swishes or drag queens. They give gays a bad name, like any type of extreme group would. That's funny. Uh, Bateson's group frequented the backroom bars. More in 1970, when they first became popular, than recently. He was not a regular at the Anvil or Mineshaft. About four years ago, he claims his social life reached a new low. So four years ago, literally, like, during the time of the movie. Nobody likes a drunk, he says, uh, of the movie coming out. Nobody likes a drunk, he says, the stigma. And two years ago, he was fired from his hospital job. Then he began floating around, doing menial chores, cleaning apartments, installing lighting fixtures, cashiering at a porn movie house. There was a period of sobriety, too, when he attended AA meetings. Many evenings were spent drinking coffee with fellow alcoholics and resisting the call of the bottle and bars. I concentrate on trying to meet someone I could get involved with. I ask if he remembers what he says uh, and does when he's under the influence. Drunkards tend to forget things. I repeat myself. Blackouts is what they're called, but mostly I just talk a lot. Drinking cuts my sex life, too. As I get high, the urge is there and stronger, but the ability to perform isn't successful. Of course, the inability to perform while drunk affects the people he goes to bed with. It isn't nice, especially if climax is the main objective, but I look for more than just the physical. I search for complete companionship. The idea of being a sex object is not my scene. Perhaps it is inevitable, as he talks, I find myself attracted to him. He is extraordinarily appealing, interesting in a quiet way, and his revelations are without self-pity. Yet I'm aware that he's playing with me. At the same time, he's confiding in someone whose articles he reads, someone who may be able to help him, but who is partly responsible for his capture. If our roles were reversed, I doubt I'd have anything to do with the reporter. But here he is, coming on, subtly at first, then stronger. To keep from responding, I avoid his eyes though I know they're electric blue, and stare at his crucifix when I'm not staring at my notepad. Very uh, village Voice, 1977. I asked him if he can project uh, what will happen with his case. Probably a long jury trial. A lot of people will be hurt. Parents, friends, I'll be judged not guilty. Then I'll tear up my roots and settle somewhere else. I'll try to grow new roots. As I prepare to leave, he says he wishes he could go home with me. Strange, eerie feelings. This is the man who was admitted to killing someone I knew. Yet if we had met six weeks ago, and the proposition and the proposition had been made in a bar instead of a prison, I'd have said you're on. All right. Wow. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, it's interesting yeah. how he like uh, completely like I mean obviously he had been an alcoholic prior to the film uh, it seems, but kind of after the release of the movie, that's when his life fell apart. It's just very chilling. This is the guy who you see in the movie being like, okay Reagan, you know this is gonna hurt a little bit, you know like. You know, really, he has like the biggest part of any of those radiologists in, the, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, no, in that Yeah, yeah,
2: you're scene. doing great, you're doing great. Yeah, yeah. he's very, very um, professional together, reassuring.
3: Yeah, I wonder, like uh, William Friedkin mentioned, uh, you know, uh, when talking about him in another interview, he said, like, you know, he was a really nice young guy. I remember he wore a leather sided bracelet and he had an earring, which in 1972 was not common in the workplace, uh you know uh and he uh, i guess i did notice he was wearing an
2: earring yeah he wearing an earring in that scene
3: yeah he was praised for having a great bedside manner uh and i guess he does seem to have a pretty good bedside manner uh like you know in in the scene but uh yeah it's very interesting that his life just completely fell apart after that and he like collapsed in alcoholism and then committed all these murders um yeah uh very 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 interesting And yeah, definitely an eerie aspect of the movie. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
2: circle back to like the content of the exorcist proper uh there was something i think maybe we alluded to earlier we talked about it before we started recording but that's the very like curious uh liminal presence of like post-war nazis in all of <laughs> yeah. Friedkin's mo- or in a lot of Friedkin's movies certainly like yeah. most of them from the 70s i think you could Point out like some kind of reference. Um, it's definitely it's big in Sorcerer, and that's where I first noticed it with Friedkin. Was there all these like little tiny moments that uh, I mean? There's one aspect of it which is that one of the one of the four people that end up on this like suicidal truck journey um, is like an assassin who goes there to murder like the original guy who's going to go uh on this you know journey with them who is like a nazi like an escape some kind of fugitive nazi it's never really clear what but he's like a german guy and uh, there's like uh the bartender at the bar in the town they're at is like a german and uh and then there's you know this very prominent shot of like the logo of the oil company they work for which is a kind of um at first glance, it looks kind of like an Aztec kind of eagle, like a, but you notice it's like painted very vividly in black, so it's a black eagle. And it's still kind of in the classic position that you would expect, like a Nazi eagle perhaps just like hiding behind some like local indigenous like folk art traditions but nonetheless it is like the Nazi black eagle trust basically yeah that was the thing that jumped out at me was like <gasps> like no you know and um and you know i mean given the politics of like what we've discussed before what was going on in south america at the time it's like a very weird astute thing to kind of like throw in there but i guess what i didn't know um is that there's, like, some mentions of Nazis in The Exorcist, which I feel like is something that doesn't really get talked about a lot. It's something that gets kind of lost in the, in all the horror and the craziness with the demonic possession that I think a lot of people, yeah. like, forget this little plot point in the movie.
3: Mm-hmm. There's two uh, weird plot points that I feel like people forget. One is kind of the allegation to... There's, like, as you mentioned, the sort of church desecration that occurs... Around, yeah. Like, uh, around these events. And it's unknown who perpetrated that. And there's sort of an implication that there might be some kind of witchcraft involved. Um, and uh, that's one kind of thread that gets woven through. And then there's the character that we mentioned a little bit earlier, who's kind of like a, uh, a weird sort of Polanski surrogate. Uh, mm-hmm. And like intimated by Reagan to be like a romantic interest for like her mother, uh, the director on her like Ho Chi Minh Disney movie, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, and he's kind of like an asshole, you know, sort of uh, vibe. And at the big party, uh, where uh, I mean, another interesting aspect is the sort of space stuff because it's the same party where you know Reagan comes downstairs and pees on the floor. And says to this guy who's about to go into space, like you're gonna die up there. Uh, yeah,
2: uh, yeah. Know, and honestly, earlier in the party. Yeah. It, it's very kind of authentic, almost, you know, cinema verite like sort of douchey Georgetown cocktail chatter of like, well, you know, yes. like, the Apollo missile is actually like greatly advanced. And it's like, there's a, the, the astronaut is basically kind of talking shop with some, you know, some other yeah. guy about the ins and outs of like the rocket programs that NASA has. And, uh, perhaps ICBMs, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so like that actually, that jumped out at me. First of all was like, Oh, there's a weird kind of like astronaut thing. And then almost as if like on cue in the next scene, the director Burke uh, starts to he's already drunk and he kind of starts talking shit to the uh servant to Chris's yeah, the man servant. Servant. yeah, yeah. like has, man, a servant, a man
3: servant. servant yeah who's an older gentleman um,
2: and he starts throwing around saying that he's like, that calling him a Nazi and says like I don't suppose yeah. that you you were the one uh, going bowling with Hermann Goering before the war you know Nazi yeah, bastard with yeah with
3: Goebbels yeah exactly or sorry, with Goebbels yeah, we yeah you, with you go Gerbils. bowling with Goebbels
2: yeah. and the guy yeah. uh, kind of hilariously says like I am Swiss
3: <laughs> yeah exactly uh, like that's uh, his reaction it comes in yeah it comes in like in media res where the guy like you know the guy's already yelling at him and saying like yeah it comes it's really funny because like the scene starts I think or, the, you know, you first hear their exchange, like, in the middle, where he's, like, saying, like, I told you for the last time, like, I'm not a Nazi. It's like, okay, sure, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, exactly, and, uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, that character is sort of an interesting character, because he sort of sees it through, uh, to the end, the, a uh, Carl, the, uh, mm-hmm. played yeah. by, uh, Rudolf Schundler, yeah, I, uh, is the, uh, you know, the, the manservant, I guess, which is, you know, it's interesting to have, a. A house servant but i guess she's like a celebrity so uh the, yeah the of she has a lot of help um she has right like two yeah people exactly with her. yeah and like the the police lieutenant asked for her autograph and stuff so she she's rich uh yeah and she retains i guess this guy but yeah he's like uh he's a sus figure because he seems to be the one who puts the crucifix under reagan's pillow that i guess it's he never kind of masturbates with famously and that
2: oh god yeah i didn't even make that connection well because she had taken it you're right because she now that i think about it she finds a crucifix underneath reagan's bed and then she goes around in the house and starts kind of you know is very upset about it and starts asking everybody did you do this did you put it here and i think carl goes like no i did not you know and (laughs) kind of plays like dumb a little bit and nobody like the three or four people she asked like nobody um Uh, says you know that and then and then the detective comes over and i remember distinctly like she puts the crucifix down on like the entryway table when he arrives Mm -hmm. like she doesn't really want to like show it to him and Mm -hmm. uh they had that long conversation where he uh uh and this is after burke ends up dead from presumably flying out of reagan's window when he was supposed to be watching her uh I guess yeah. when other people had left the house and so the detective's yeah, coming and around and
3: he like breaks she like breaks his neck like his neck is twisted all the way around you know that's kind of a uh, what the famous head turning around scene is a reference to like the, the manner of his death. Uh, yes, exactly. And uh, and
2: the, the, the detective is, you know, I mean, he's, he's like a little suspicious and, you know, uh, all these things. And of course they they have this like polite conversation that goes on for a while. And, uh, you know, he kind of reveals that like, he believes that, you know, a a large man must've done this because, uh, You know, obviously, like Reagan couldn't have done it, but he still has kind of these vague suspicions because he feels like "Mm, he was probably thrown out of your daughter's window, and that's odd, and all these other things. And he's already revealed to uh, Father Karras that he's kind of uh, considering different ideas for like what this might be. He thinks it might be a deranged priest because he might think he thinks that the desecration of uh, the statue of Mary. Um, might have been a part of, like, a very specific, you know, ritual black mass where, like, a priest who would know these rites was, like, inverting them. And then maybe, you know, this priest uh, went to this nearby house and, you know, uh, killed this guy like and twisted his head around in a weird way mm-hmm. and all that stuff. But anyways, like, so, okay, you, you kind of get distracted by all that stuff going on. Then he fin- the detective finally leaves, and then I think that's when there's commotion from the upstairs and Chris goes back up there and... Uh, Reagan is like Masturbating like violently With the crucifix but she had put Mm -hmm. The crucifix down it was Not in her room anymore unless there was like Another Mm -hmm. one in there so Yeah that almost leads you to believe that like Carl like while they were having their Conversation like sneakily took the crucifix And like went back up Mm -hmm. in there and put It under her bed and it, that, that's never resolved in the movie. I mean, it's never kind of. a plot
3: hole, yeah. Or I guess she could have just, m- like, pressed and digitated it, like, back into her hands, uh, you know. But, yeah, I mean, she definitely masturbates with the crucifix. And it's um, the same one so, for, all, yeah. for
2: all intents and purposes, as far as we can tell. It's just kind of, yeah, that might have been a plot hole, but at the same time, given that it's also kind of a plot hole, that you never find out who did that. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it would be Carl. Carl is the most suspicious person of all the people that are, like, working for them, the most likely to have. He also, you, you pointed out at one point, I think when the, uh, when Max Monsito finally shows up, he says something like, it isn't taking food or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like, exactly. He refers to yeah. Reagan as it.
3: Right, yeah, he knows that she's demonically possessed, uh, yeah. which, yeah, is interesting. And uh, also,
2: you I, know, yeah, also that. just to go back to the party, like William freaking kind of puts, uh, he puts like an extra fine point in it where like not only is there that passing cocktail chatter where Burke is calling him a Nazi but then later he's like even drunker and they're in the kitchen together and he says another thing about him being a Nazi and uh, Carl like flips out and is like yeah. I yeah. will kill you and like yeah, you know, exactly. basically yeah, like lunges like at him and tries to him. choke yeah. him. Yeah, they have to <laughs> pull him off and shit. So yeah. like uh, he seems to be very touchy about being called a Nazi. Yeah, um, exactly. I don't know. Yeah, the, the, the thing about like bowling with Goebbels is like very specific. It seems like this guy, like, somehow became aware that, that like this is, a this is like, a, a war criminal or something that is, like, laying low mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C., and, yeah. you know, working for rich people, living a very quiet life, and he seems to be very specifically agitated, but he doesn't just seem to be a, a, a German, you know, a German, Germanophobe or whatever, um, mm-hmm. you know, generally speaking. Though he does seem, I forget, does he have a vaguely foreign accent?
3: Yeah, he does, um...
2: I can't remember if it's English yeah. or if it's just like vaguely European.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I don't quite remember, but... Uh, but either
2: way, yeah. I think the idea that, you know, this is this young hotshot director making kind of like liberal... Uh, mid-cult movies and has like the same haircut and style and kind of attitude as like a Roman Polanski in this movie that is about demonic like the devil possessing people and yeah. then he shit talks a Nazi at a Washington cocktail party and then slowly after the devil kills him <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is kind of right. like I don't know there's a lot going on there a little bit
3: yeah definitely uh like, yeah, like commentary it's interesting... on
2: Hollywood on Polanski
3: yeah, it's a super interesting aspect of the movie that, like, is kind of... there. Yeah, there's all these, like, weird sort of aspects that kind of pivot around the uh, main uh, sort of uh, set piece of, of Regan's bedroom um, that I feel like are, you know, uh, less remembered. Uh, it's weird, because, like, those are almost, like... It's famously, like, a movie that has, like, subliminal images that, like, aren't really subliminal because everyone, like, sees them and knows of them, uh, but uh, those are almost the subliminal aspect of the movies, like, these weird, like, sort of plot holes that uh, mm-hmm. you don't, like, really quite remember or these uh, sure. strange he, sort of he a did, loose ends in the plot, yeah. He did, though, um, say
2: in Leap of Faith that, of course, like, the cut away the single frames of Captain Howdy, the demon that is possessing Reed. Yeah. Uh, which are pretty effective and creepy. Um, they, they get slipped in throughout the movie, and you do notice them, so they're not, like, strictly subliminal. But he also said yeah. that in this movie and later movies, he said, like, yeah, that's one level of stuff I did. But then there's stuff <laughs> that like, you were not, you not going to be able to perceive that's, like, in the sound design and right. other kind of stuff that is, like, it is it is literally yeah, like subliminal. like t- the
3: ticking clock, like, uh, in that one scene where there's, like, that, you know, clock ticking. um uh just you know as uh you know chris is like in the downstairs and she just gets off the phone and there's that sort of ticking grandfather clock in the background uh Mm -hmm. that yeah you don't necessarily notice right um yeah. No, I don't think I did. Oh, yeah. Um, and there was the clock that, that like,
2: stopped in the beginning of it, right? And didn't he say that that was like a coincidence? Like it happened while they were shooting that scene mm-hmm. where he's with like the antiquities dealer. And yeah. the clock in the room stopped and he decided to just use that. And there's like a big moment where Max Saito like just walks up to it and kind of clocks it and is disturbed. Um,
3: and,
2: yeah. Yeah, there's like all kinds of weird little, uh, little things like that going on. On. Yeah,
3: I guess one of the stories that I, like, came up on a bunch of the documentaries I watched was that Max von Sydow, like, had a big problem, like, saying, you know, the power of Christ compels you, like, or delivering the line well, because he, mm-hmm. like, didn't believe in God, uh, and William Friedkin yeah. was like, but you played Jesus, uh, <laughs> you know, like, how, and he's like, yeah, well, I played him as a normal man or something, it's like, well, I uh, just play this as a normal man who believes in God or something, but uh, yeah, it took him a while, but of course, you know, now famous performance so uh it obviously is it eventually is. mastered it but i guess it was a big stumbling block for him um he got his but, yeah result. i guess a lot you know yeah well, now you know
2: up. what I, has any did you did you ever find anything about this movie in terms like analysis of it that suggests maybe that carl was involved in the demonic possession of reagan Because Uh, he's a Nazi cultist. I didn't come across anything like that, no. Okay, I'm just thinking Uh, in terms of, like, if you were going to attempt to tie up some some loose ends, that mm -hmm. it is still not, uh, it is completely not fleshed out in the movie who desecrated the church. And it couldn't have been, it comes too early in the plot, I think, for it to have been Reagan. I don't think she's, like, really exhibiting extreme behavior like that yet. And I don't think the movie really wants to suggest that it was her.
3: Hm. so yeah, it's like I mean, it is who interesting did it that he, to consider that he maybe did it and that he was like an uh cultist uh of some kind uh i don't know there is i just googled like you know carl exorcist nazi um <laughs> and uh what uh, came up was a uh form post on captain howdy.com the number one mm-hmm. exorcist fan site since 1999 <laughs> Wow. Uh, Which is, you know, just, was Carl a Nazi? Uh, Mm -hmm. The replies are, he was Swiss, but we know that Burke called him a cunting hun and a butchering Nazi. He seemed to hate Carl, and no one could tell, uh, one could tell it was extremely personal. Maybe Burke was Jewish? Many Swiss, who are in fact majority ethnic Germans, collaborated with the Nazis, although they were officially neutral. Could Burke's hatred of Carl be linked to his possible Jewish background? If Burke was Jewish, does that make his murder a hate crime? was well, it demon Pazuzu, an anti-Semite. Interesting, uh, post there. Uh, hmm.
2: What if Carl yeah, murdered, I guess murdered Burke? Uh,
3: yeah, it, I mean, it's definitely conceivable. Uh, I mean, it's, it's also possible for sure. I mean, I guess he would be the main suspect if it weren't for the existence of Pazuzu. Um... But, Unless he yeah, was also so this,
2: involved. Because how... I mean, okay, she talked in the Ouija board to Captain Howdy. That's sort of suggested that, you know, that is... What is the
3: significance of Captain Howdy, by the way? Like, he's a captain? Like, is he, like, Obersturmführer Howdy? Exactly. Like, or is
2: this, you know, like, Dr. Green or something? Like, this is his co- MK Ultra code name Because... He seems to be, he's the one that is around her. So if he were going to do anything bad, I mean, I think they even ask her under hypnosis at one point, is Captain Howdy the one that's possessing you? And she's like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's like, like,
3: yeah, like, uh, you know, can I talk to the one that's possessing you? And she's like, no. <laughs> you know, yeah, like. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Mm, right. I and guess there, uh, apparently, there's a book called. uh, American Exorcist: Critical Essays on William Peter Blatty. Um, that deals with fear. Uh, There's an essay in that by Philip L. Simpson called "Fear of the Assimilation of the Foreign Other" in the Exorcist. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could be about a lot of different things, but on this post on CaptainHowdy.com, someone does sort of imply that uh, you know this might be. People are uh, kind of an going for. I this, see f-
2: uh, a Fist wrote on December fifth, two thousand nine. That this also links us back to World War II in Europe where Mar- for, where Father Marin had witnessed so much horror. The demon was there as well. The demon targeted Burke, who could possibly have been Jewish, and the Christian priest yet never harmed Carl. If Burke's mm-hmm. serious allegations against Carl were true, it could somehow make sense for Pazuzu not to target him. As for Regan, she was just collateral damage in the demon's war against Marin. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean... It's uh you know I mean I think it's all liminal so you can't really say but the, the that that does always kind of like stick out like Captain Howdy like who like that's just such a wacky kind of throwaway I mean maybe it's the idea is supposed to sound fun and like cute but it sounds like a scary like uh like a creepy adult in a van or something like I'm Captain Howdy like you know it sounds like a, like a predatory like nickname you would give to sound not scary, to like mm-hmm. a twelve-year-old, right? Yeah. Um But yeah, it's true that the the, the demons does not attack Carl at any point, even though he's the one putting the crucifix probably under Regan's pillow. Even though he he maybe even goes back and puts it back after you know Chris removes it, and nothing bad happens to him. But Burke gets you know his head twisted around and thrown out a window, and you know if he I mean we don't know if Burke is jewish but i would say the odds get and also also given that he is modeled after roman polanski it's almost kind of implied that you know yeah
3: but another aspect that just occurred to me and i'm kind of embarrassed to say that it's just occurring to me uh given the roman polanski connection is like you know i guess he was watching her you know he was babysitting her but like mm what was he doing in her bedroom? You know, like, uh,
2: exactly. Exactly. It's a little
3: bit like sus. There's another sus aspect to like, you know, Burke, uh, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh,
2: that, that is definitely with Polanski and everything. Like there's Mm -hmm. a kind of weird thing. It kind of, you know, and of course, this would have been before uh, Polanski's legal problems with all of that. Mm-hmm. But it yeah. did kind of jump out at me a little bit, as you know, why? Yeah, Burke would never go in her room, and it's like, uh, y'all were way too trusting of like hotshot Hollywood directors in 1973. <laughs> like, uh, mm-hmm. the, I don't know. Um, you certainly seem to be all yeah. over the place, but I don't know.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but know, I wonder maybe we're just projecting what we. Some... I wonder if there's like, maybe some implication. I don't know. Yeah, there's a... Hmm. Yeah. There's... I don't that, know. There's a lot of different interpretations. Uh, that yeah, and change. and I don't
2: know if Friedkin... Because Friedkin kind of, like, popped off maybe right after... Well, I mean, Plansky was still in Hollywood in throughout most of the 70s. I don't know to what extent they knew each other or were friends or mm-hmm. didn't like each other or anything like that it does i mean it mm-hmm. looks like he's poking a little fun i don't know if it's in good nature or if he's like making mm-hmm. a kind of douchey caricature because burke the character of burke is like a little bit douchey as far as you know a hollywood director goes right
3: yeah definitely though i mean uh, I, I, I i couldn't help
2: but get on his side when especially if he's polanski he would be you know he'd be pretty pissed if he saw a nazi given his childhood. Yeah, I guess, you know what I mean? Yeah, that would make
3: sense, right. Mm-hmm.
2: Really, any continental European would, you know, have not, uh, especially if they're Jewish, uh, would react pretty uh, pretty, pretty bad to that. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. But it's an interesting, I don't know. I'm looking at Carl Ingström. you know. He's just sort of uh, floating around there, never getting attacked by the demon, putting crosses in there, which, I don't know, does that just, like, Piss off the demon more? Is that like a kind of sacrilege thing? Because I mean, you know, is it really helping if you're just slipping a cross in there, as opposed to doing mm, a proper exorcism? Yeah. You know, or are you just well, making? Well, I it don't worse?
3: know. Yeah, or was he just? I mean, like you know, crosses can be. I mean, the swastika is basically a cross. You know, like uh just because like you're trying to protect yourself from like a demon using like your knowledge you know of like this thing doesn't necessarily mean that you're good you know uh like if you're like an old nazi like in retirement like whether you know he might uh you know i mean even in uh sorcerer you know there isn't like you know in a lot of uh william Freakin's movies like uh you know uh yeah, in, in Sorcerer, for instance, or, or in To Live and Die in L.A., there isn't really, like, a super great, like, heroic guy, you know, who's perfect. I mean, Father Karis is, like, kind of a good, you know, like, a very ups- uh, fairly upstanding protagonist-type figure, but uh, in Sorcerer, you know, they're all very seedy people. Um, mm. And, like, you know, uh, one person, of course, you know, I feel like this is uh, a theme that comes up, like, one of them is, like, a Palestinian terrorist, you know, who's, like, friends <laughs> with the <a> Nazi, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh yeah, so but like yeah. uh, they're all you know so supposed to be kind of these these low lifes and uh, so I feel like and and even you know uh, the Nazi guy at one point is kind of positioned as being uh, you know potential member of this of this group you know so I feel mm-hmm. like uh, maybe he could have like uh, an ambiguous role like despite you know the you know th- there's the ambiguity about whether it, it's true that he's a Nazi so uh, you know maybe he's making some kind of point there. Uh, about the the you know the the ambiguity or the nature questioning of whether or, or not people yeah. are
2: Nazis. Yeah, I mean mm. hmm,
3: it yeah. is interesting.
2: Mm. I mean it's always hovering in the background. Uh, even though he does sound kind of like fascinated by Hitler in a, in a very mm-hmm. classic like baby yeah Hoover he did way. that was
3: a funny a re- very funny quote uh, from William Friedkin where he went on a long. There's a movie called Friedkin Uncut, uh, which is uh, I think I've mentioned uh, earlier. And uh, he, uh, you know, the movie opens with this long, long monologue about him saying, "Just the the two greatest people in history are Jesus and Hitler," you know. And he's like, uh, "I don't, you know, okay. I don't admire Hitler at all, but he was an example of extremes in terms of the twentieth century. He was evil incarnate. But I know a lot of things about Hitler that don't add up to that. Uh, does it mean that our assessment mm-hmm. of him should change? You know, like, uh, and he just like go, you know, goes on I about love it. You know, like, uh, uh, he made, yeah." A big impression
2: I love that he he does that, but then meanwhile in the Leap of Faith documentary, he like casually mentions at some point about like human cruelty, like, you know, Stalin killed twenty million of his own people because he thought they were worthless. Yeah, that's so how, that's how worthless. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the, that yeah, was, yeah, okay. like, a, just a parable about, like, the human condition was, like, oh, yeah, yeah. Stalin just, like, he murdered them all. I think he, he did, to them be all fair, mention
3: Hitler first, and then he, he was, did. like, and Stalin well, he, he did the classic uh,
2: one-two punch yes, of, like, yeah, I'm yes, yes, going to start did, talking about how bad Hitler was. And also Stalin uh, was, uh, <laughs> like, kind of for no reason except that he just hated his people and wanted to kill them because they're worthless uh, or mm-hmm. something like that. So he's showing the kind of typical, uh, you know... Uh, kind of boomer hollywood uh uh both Mm -hmm. sides that human humanity is a shit uh drop the bomb like everything sucks uh and stalin was just as evil but he's not as like fascinated by stalin as he is by hitler
3: yeah uh for sure yeah uh no he's definitely not one of the two the big two of jesus and hitler but um (laughs) <laughs> yeah like uh, uh I'm seeing also on the on these forms I guess like the go the going theory about the desecration of the statue is uh-huh. that Reagan like snuck out at night and did it using the clay that she you know was seen to use to make those little clay sculptures mm. um and uh but I don't know I almost think it's uh more interesting if uh it's unclear I mean it did it doesn't necessarily you know, it's not, it's definitely not like explicitly stated or made very clear that it was her. I suppose it's possible churches do tend to sometimes be open late at night, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe not that that hard to sneak into.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, But it, it it kind of, it just dangles there a little bit and, uh, and the cop for a while seems very interested in the idea that there's like a cult running around doing
3: this yes doing all this mm-hmm. stuff and Definitely.
2: what if it's yeah, a bunch of nazis stuff. uh including carl um
3: yeah it's possible yeah for sure.
2: everybody uh mm-hmm. with this horrible thing to get everybody uh to believe in mysticism again um or mm-hmm. something yeah. i don't know uh,
3: <laughs> or yeah or maybe uh yeah i don't know it could be could be there's multiple interpretations, but yeah, the character of Carl is definitely a weird uh, kind of uh, loose end uh, in in the movie. Yeah, is he a Nazi? Yeah, is he involved in some kind of cult like what's being uh, telegraphed here? There's definitely yeah, much like sorcerer, there's like that sort of subtle uh, implication. There's something going on. Um, exactly. Yeah, and, and yeah, both Burke and Carl like underappreciated character aspects of the movie. Uh, where yeah. Um, it's sort of like what's being gotten at here um I think there, they yeah, do could be something,
2: yeah, yeah, they do a lot um with you know in the margins a little bit, and uh I mean maybe that that can kind of bring us to I think why it's interesting is like looking at his overall filmography and the plots of the various movies that like he went on to make, like we talked about a couple of them. You know, uh, To Live and Die in L.A. and Sorcerer and Cruising and The French Connection before that. But I actually, there's a number that I haven't watched yet, and I don't think you have either. But I just went through them, like, earlier today, and I was amazed that we we got kind of like five out of five hits, basically, for... Very interesting, like with the exception of probably Blue Chips from 1994, which is just like a, <laughs> a sport, like a college sports um, basketball comedy, uh, starring Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway. Um, besides that, which I, actually I don't know, I'd have to watch it. Maybe it does have some sus elements in it, but there were a number here. Oh, yeah, and obviously, rules of engagement, which we like, talked about, um, which was written by Jim Webb. But, like, even going back to the 80s, so, like, I noticed a few of these that really jump out with, like, okay, he's he's got to be painting a lot in the margins, like the first of which uh, is the deal of the century from 1983, uh, which starred Chevy chase, Gregory Hines and Sigourney Weaver that was, uh, I guess intended to be kind of like the Dr. Strange love of the eighties. And it's about a small time American arms dealer who talks his way into a job at a large defense corporation selling high tech military unmanned aerial vehicles, drones to a South American dictator. And like, it's like a, kind of a wacky, absurdist, like, uh, thing that all revolves around the Peacemaker UAV, a military dream that operates without pilots or air bases. But uh, the, the military cool. junta of the fictional country of San Miguel, um, like, strings the these guys along. And, like, it's it sounds like, I mean like there's some deep intrigue with like the military industrial complex going on in this movie. And I had never even heard of this I, in everything I've ever heard about William Friedkin, you know, I guess it didn't do well. It's not considered yeah. uh great, it has an 11% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I feel like the mm-hmm. subject matter alone is kind of like, whoa, that is pretty yes. interesting, kind of ambitious given what we saw in sorcerer with his kind of South American. And, you know, he, it just as a brief side note about Sorcerer, like, the, the production of that was even more notorious than The Exorcist, because he went down, I think it was to Bolivia, and, like, actually went out in the middle of the jungle and, you know, wanted to film, like, documentary-style these trucks, like, almost falling off the cliff, and, like, they did almost fall off the cliff sometimes, and, like, blowing yeah, up, like, like, tree trunks with dynamite. Like, he he went on some crazy shit that would probably get you, like, sued to oblivion today. You would never be able to do it, yeah. but uh, th- he really pushed everybody, like, like to the limit, and like spent yeah, a ton he was of known studio money. Being,
3: like a maniacal director, I, I think, like uh, mm-hmm. throughout his career, like he was known as having like fits of anger and just yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, so, so you uh, know,
2: there's a lot going on with that. And then of, yeah. in 1987, you know, he goes back to kind of crime, and he he wrote and directed and produced uh, Rampage, starring Michael Bean or Michael Bine. I always forget what it is. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a fan of his, though. I always like his shit. Um, mm. You know, he's one of these 80s, like, staple character actors. Right, he um, was
3: uh, Carl Reese, right? Yeah, yes,
2: in right. Terminator 1, and, uh, and Corporal Hicks in Aliens. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so... But in this, he actually plays Charles Reese, which is bizarre. I don't know why... I don't know Uh, (laughs) why his name is Charles Reese as well, but he plays a serial killer who commits a number of brutal mutilation slayings in order to drink blood as a result of paranoid delusions. And then I guess a lot of the movie is a, uh, is a trial like a courtroom drama of him trying to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And then Mm -hmm. there's like, yeah. So I, I don't know. I think, um, this, uh, I guess this is based on the serial killer, Richard Chase. Um,
3: Oh, is that the vampire of Sacramento? Uh, Yes, it was.
2: It was a necrophile, cannibal, uh, rapist, Mm -hmm. and serial killer who killed six people in the span of a month in Sacramento, California. He drank their blood and cannibalized his uh, victims. uh, And that was, uh, yeah, wow. So uh, Yeah, that
3: must have, I feel like the whole experience with Paul Bateson must have factored into that. Choice, uh, yeah, um, it must to, have. It to, must to have similar to yeah, similar to. It, it does have
2: a score uh, like uh, *Panos Cosmodes*, uh Nazi SS massacre movie by Ennio cone so that's something um, might be. It sounds a little bit like *Programmed to Kill* kind of vibes going on, uh, but it also. Sound, he says that uh, he said there are a lot of people who love *Rampage*, but I don't think I hit my own mark with that. So you know, not super. Um, uh, I guess successful. Um, but then, Oh, and that was also produced by Dino De Laurentiis who did, uh, the Rambo movies. I believe, oh. um, he was in that eighties action producer with like Andrew Vina and, uh, and Cosmatos and all those people. So, you know, you had those and then, um, then you had a more uh, kind of back to Exorcist. Uh, the, the first horror movie he did since The Exorcist was The Guardian, um, where like a, n- a nanny oh, is hired by yes, two. Yes, The Guardian, and she was yeah. like a,
3: a, a, a tree, a hamadryad. A hamadryad.
2: A yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Dryad.
3: Right, <laughs> yes. Um, word. That's, uh, yeah, we should. Uh, okay, yeah, definitely, because I actually have seen The Guardian. And that is another one of those movies that I did not realize that William Friedkin made. Um, uh, uh-huh. Yeah, so I feel like we need to discuss. She that, sacrifice, uh, yeah, they, like sacrifices babies yeah. to a tree. Yeah. Uh, so it's like some.
2: There's some human sacrifice shit. There's uh, yeah. There's that's just... like
3: one of those very, very weird like monster like selection for that movie. Like not one that you normally see of like a tree witch like elemental being yeah there is definitely like some some stuff there in the guardian yeah for sure um yeah, yeah. so uh, you know
2: so so like that's you know where i'm we'd have to see it but i have a feeling that you know there's some there's some weird definitely some going par- on i it. feel like
3: we could definitely weave that through um and uh yeah, this yeah I'm just reading Wikipedia about the the movie now because uh, uh, when you said that I reacted was surprised that that was that was William Freakin' movie, but I guess uh, originally it was a Sam Raimi project um, and it was supposed to be tongue in cheek, but then Freakin came in and he was like, no, this is going to be about uh, mythology and Lilith, uh, you know, um, yeah, yeah, um,
2: well. So, you know, there's that. And then- wow,
3: there's some great stuff in here. Uh, after Volk suggested using elements from the M.R. James story, the ash tree in the script, Freakin became fixated on incorporating a tree into the backstory. <laughs> Volk <laughs> reportedly suffered a nervous breakdown and went the production leaving Freakin to finish the script's loose ends after filming had already begun. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> this is great. Pages were flying at us, and then suddenly this weird kind of tr- uh, idea of this weird kind of tree came about. And suddenly my character was not just a nanny, but she was a, a, a tree. Um, yeah, that's great. Uh, we're definitely, like, you know, we're going to have to do some more Friedkin episodes. And I think that we need to go uh, do a deeper dive into the Guardian. Um, I think these, these
2: yeah. B-sides sound very promising in terms yeah, of and their, they their all subject illuminate. matter. I
3: mean, just Sorcerer itself, like, you know, is a, v- a fairly, like, little-known movie. Like, until you recommended Sorcerer to me, like, I had not seen it or mm-hmm. come across it, or, like, had anyone else recommend it to me. Um, and, I mean, it's an amazing movie. It's probably better than The Exorcist. Well, you know, they're both different types of films, but they really interact in an interesting way, and even though, like, people were, like, outraged that there was no sorcerer in it, and it wasn't, <laughs> like, you know, a more proper Exorcist sequel, in a way, like, it is, like, it does have a sort of sense of successorship in terms of the the ideas. Uh, yeah. you definitely can I mean... see some of the same stuff. In, in The Guardian, now that I reflect upon it. Again, something I haven't seen in many years, but... Yeah, um, I mean, Pazuzu yeah.
2: literally makes, like, several cameos in Sorcerer. What more do you want? Yeah,
3: there is, like, a weird uh, or Aztec... Or a similar... Like he, yeah, he, yeah, exactly, like, a sort of Aztec gargoyle that he zooms in on. Uh, on the yeah, highway. Exactly, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And, um, yeah, so I, I think that... Uh, no, and I think, actually, Sorcerer made me appreciate The Exorcist more. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'd obviously seen Exorcist... Uh, think you know how to watch it in college and you know it was one of those like foundational you know movies that you have to examine and mm-hmm. i liked it but it was kind of like well okay like yeah exorcist like it, it didn't really stir me as kind of I, I saw it as you know like a kind of stylistic and like you know mm-hmm. uh achievement of craft but but the kind of weird yeah. liminal content in it those... didn't really come out until you see sorcerer and then you're like whoa okay this is this is a very weird take on basically adapting the Wages of Fear, like the French movie from the 40s, mm-hmm. which was about the same thing, like four guys driving a truck full of dynamite. And, you know, but it takes such a... And given that you know this is the Exorcist guy directing it, it's like, what is he going for here? But it's mesmerizing. Yeah. And it's like... And it's, it's, like it's really the, engrossing.
3: It's the immediate follow-up as well, which, like, you know, expectations were so high, and they were, like, disa- like you know, quite disastrously disappointed uh, in terms <laughs> of, like, the, you know... Um, I think the trailer for this like ran before Star Wars, and they were like, you know, getting blown off the screen by what people were seeing in, in Star Wars. But um, yeah, like uh, you know, it came out around the same time, and like uh, I think that like lots of people attribute its its failure to, to that. But um, yeah, interesting
2: just, that you know, I- interesting that, that almost like uh, Sorcerer was in a lot of ways the kind of high water mark of. Uh, almost to the point of being like literally death defying and dangerous practical effects yeah in a big mm-hmm. hollywood movie that had matured to that point where it's like no like his approach was like we got to go down to the jungles of bolivia we have to go on like rural mountain roads so literally and,
3: like, ha- like drive this <laughs> truck over like the famous scene in source where the truck bridge scene oh like they really <laughs> the brought tree. that truck over the bridge. Yeah, like it's like a collapsing rope bridge. And they're carrying like a truck full of like, you know, in the movie explosive nitroglycerin, but it's still a real truck that they really drove across this collapsing bridge. It's like such an intense scene. It's it's yeah, really yeah. yeah. And like that's like the sense of like the, the sorcerer is like this sort of like the caprice of, of fate, like, you know, the the, 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 the you know, uh, the tension and and the, any at any moment like, you know, by the whims of fate this this truck either make it or not you know you're in the hands of this and there's even more but uh yeah, uh, it, yeah, yeah, it's a great. Sounds, I think yeah.
2: that's my favorite Friedkin movie. I think by a mile, though. You know, we'll see when I go through these other ones. But it just kind of it operates yeah. on this, I mean, this, this hard level. To and Star Wars was whatever. the opposite. Star Wars was a bunch of like toys inside of industrial light and magic, like zooming around, which is you know not yeah, to not literally. Nod, it was the,
3: like a shoebox, <laughs> uh, like with like, a, a I mean, two I, toys in it. Yeah, I guess they were um, practical
2: <laughs> effects in the sense they weren't like computerized. Like for the most part, they were like models, and and they were innovative. And they use like dogfight, you know, camera footage from World War Two yeah, cool. to um, model it, had, and all that. Um, We all you know, know the story. Yeah, they had big it's...
3: puppets, Jim Henson, you know. <laughs> it was like doo, 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 that's doo,
2: where the doo, doo, real you know, magic like, was.
3: And, and JJ brought it back. Yeah, exactly. Um,
2: but you know, but, JJ um, would not be allowed, nor would I think he would be willing or capable of bringing back the bridge crossing scene from Sorcerer.
3: No, he would not be capable or willing. And if he, that would be the absolute worst nightmare ever like of i mean that would never happen but like it just is like send like you know making me like you know uh like vomit thinking about like the the prospect of that but yeah it would just be terrible um and it just like wouldn't yeah i feel like it would almost be like i mean michael bay like i'm picturing like a michael bay take on like sorcerer i don't know it just like would not be the, it's yeah it's a it's truly yeah a, a, a singular a singular movie um mm-hmm. but uh yes and definitely like uh the same like it's definitely an interesting piece to read alongside uh alongside the exorcist Remember, talk about jade briefly uh yeah i remember william freaking saying that like he was just shocked that people didn't like jade because he really thought he hit the mark with that one uh i haven't actually seen it but you know in you know reading or, or in viewing some Friedkin i interviews, uh, yeah he mentioned it yeah
2: i haven't um, either but just in reading the basic synopsis i had actually never heard of this movie at all but then in just reading the synopsis of it i thought you know this is this is like primo subliminal jihad kind of content that they were working with this story uh, because it is about it's a kind of um police sort of role. Well, it's more like a political erotic conspiracy thriller starring David Caruso and uh, he plays a, a San Francisco assistant district attorney, David Corelli, who's called to the murder scene of prominent businessman Kyle Medford found bludgeoned to death in his home by an antique hatchet. Police detectives find photographs in Medford's safe of Governor Lou Edwards having sex with a prostitute. During questioning, uh, the the prostitute reveals that other women and she were paid by Medford to have sex with wealthy men at his beach house in Pacifica. She also informs them that the most desired prostitute among the clients was a woman known only as Jade. And, um, you know, I won't read the entire thing, but what I did find immediately jumping out is that the, I guess maybe the main antagonist, uh, jade in the movie Mm -hmm. who is running with like these powerful people um and is like a famous like clinical psychologist in san francisco her name is katrina gavin and she's married to corelli's best friend defense attorney matt gavin no And uh, I guess, you know, there's like there's drugs, there's alcohol, sex toys, hidden video cameras, blackmail operations and, you know, murder plots. And it's all around like the high society of San Francisco. And the antagonists last name are Gavin, which I mean, okay, Gavin Newsom was a young guy in 1995, though he was like third generation political royalty. I'm not saying that anybody was predicting the future by naming them Gavin, but it does—it it is kind of funny. And the film's tagline is, some fantasies go too far. But basically, this sounds like San Francisco elites are running like an Epstein kind of, you know, at least a kind of escort blackmail operation thing that escalates into, like, murder and depravity and all this other stuff. So, you know, and this came out before Eyes Wide Shut, 1995. And mm-hmm. I don't know... Uh, you know god it had a 50 million dollar budget can you believe that wow like an adult like erotic thriller by uh william Freakin. um and it actually was from a script by joe esterhaus who for a while was the highest earning screenwriter in hollywood probably of all time if we're being honest Mm. i mean everything from like die hard to uh well later on the last boy scout what lethal weapon? That was kind of his big come up. And uh, I think by the mid 90s, though, he started to get kind of, you know, he made Showgirls, which actually won the Razzie for 1995. So he was competing mm-hmm. against himself for the two worst screenplay awards for this movie, Jade and Showgirls. And Showgirls won. Uh, but freaking, um, freaking wait, did say also it contained.
3: Who made Showgirls? Uh, uh, like Joe
2: Esterhas, a- uh and I believe that was Paul Verhoeven directed it.
3: Hmm, I see. another another interesting uh,
2: director, uh, overall, wow.
1: but, uh, uh
3: hmm, y- yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> Joe Esterhaus, uh, wow, that's, yeah, quite a bad year, uh, for, yeah, I guess, uh, Caruso, uh, also, like, uh, was, uh, had a banner year at the Razzies, um, that year, um,
2: I guess he okay, did yeah. and yeah
3: David Caruso who was starring in the movie um, There's an unrated uh, David director's David
2: c- yeah there's um, an un- unrated director's cut uh, with more explicit sex footage uh, additional <laughs> 12 minutes that was released on D- VHS but it's now out of print um so I guess uh, you can't get the un- unrated version anymore. Um, yeah, but I guess, guess you can Friedkin still find it.
3: Wrote in his in his autobiography, the Friedkin connection. Uh, you know, he said uh, it contains some of my best work. I felt I had let down the actors, the studio, and most of all, Sherry. Uh, that was his wife at the time, uh, Paramount executive. uh mm, nice. so, so, yeah, I, I went into a deep funk. Was it the Exorcist curse, as many have suggested? A poor choice of material, or simply that whatever talent I had was ephemeral. Maybe all of the above. Uh, So, yeah. Mm. He he blamed the exorcist curse for the poor performance of Jade. Uh, But I'm interested to actually see it. Uh, Yeah, because it's stabbing at something. Kind of maybe it's like Uh, Cobra,
2: where it's like clumsily stabbing at something. uh, Yeah, that is kind of real. The review Uh,
3: of uh, yeah the uh, the Rotten Tomatoes consensus review is, is pretty brutal and a sensible erotic thriller that's neither erotic nor thrilling. Uh, okay, um, yeah. one of the unfortunate so, low points for an aggressively sexual mid-90s cinema. Okay, <laughs> um, apparently Asian art, like, Jade, is a main theme in the movie, uh, which, I guess William freaking collects, like, uh, different, like, art, uh, from, from around the world, like, he has an African art collection, uh, mm-hmm. in addition to all his, like, Eisenstein prints and things like that, you know, in his, in his wow. very old Hollywood, uh, okay. homes. But, uh, yeah, so I guess yeah. that, uh you know maybe feeds into to, to jade um but yeah, yeah. there's also yeah bug i read the play bug i never saw the movie in fact weren't we both assigned to read the play bug in like one in one class or something but i, I don't uh, know but, i feel uh, like i
2: had to read something by tracy Letts, but i don't know if it was bug
3: it, oh wow i didn't even re- i don't even remember that bug was tracy Left. i mean we probably had to go see august osage county at one point which uh yeah you know was his big his big play which sucks um yeah but, it did suck i, yeah, I think so, i left
2: uh in the intermission
3: <laughs> yeah we all did uh we both left <laughs> yeah together <laughs> but um yeah um uh, but uh, anyway yeah so you, um um it was bad uh but anyway so yeah but uh bug is like the interesting, I guess yeah it sounds interesting
2: because it's got that uh you know it's got this thing about like a a soldier and a girl uh who are in a a motel room in Oklahoma the whole thing takes place in that and he's convinced uh that they're being watched by the U.S. government and the room is infested with like bugs I assume like listening devices right y- yeah, yeah well they
3: believe that they're being like monitored by either the government or uh aliens uh in some so they're way. targeted individ- uh, they
2: they're basically targeted individuals.
3: yeah they're targeted individuals right and it's sort of an ambiguous thing about whether uh they're ta- they're targeted individuals or they're uh you know um actually like just delusional um,
2: Interesting yeah. So we're you know, playing again with like you know The paranoia does shoot through mm-hmm. uh, Most of his yeah. films um, You can see the
3: appeal yeah mm-hmm.
2: Yeah and um, But then there's okay so then I think the last two We maybe should like Mention one we did before But these are the two Well I guess all three of these are military themed Movies that he made kind of One right before nine eleven, and then two In 2003 and 2006 Bug was the last one, two thousand six, um, and then of course uh, maybe just I don't know. Uh, working backwards, uh, he actually directed The Hunted in two thousand three, which I remember it coming out and had no awareness that it was a William Friedkin movie, even to like this day. Like I found out today that it was a William Friedkin. Yeah, movie. it's so um, so
3: much of his, so many of his movies just can get so easily memory hold. Uh mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like. Uh, because, yeah, it's just, it's so, yeah, it's so interesting when, you know, uh, we were conceiving, like, this uh, episode or a series of episodes, maybe, uh, that it will evolve into... Uh, around, like, you know, the, just the exorcist sorcerer and the oddity of the rules of engagement. There's so many other, like, bizarre yes. movies. Like, yeah, The Haunted is, is a very interesting example. Well, um, I think when, when
2: yeah. we were, yeah, we were on Cobra, on the Cobra episode, on Awaro, we were talking about, you know, the transformation of, like, Rambo, how First Blood was really the most viable movie in terms of being, like, a good film that isn't propaganda. Basically, uh, and that Rambo goes kind of through this like alchemical transformation into this like juiced up Avenger of American glory in Vietnam, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, and, you know, kicking communist ass all around the globe. Uh, but... Uh, But the first one is really more about, like, the PTSD of this guy and how he's sort of rejected by society and nobody helps him out. His last buddy from Vietnam, like, died of Agent Orange. It definitely has this, like, late Carter vibe to it. So I guess in The Hunted, it it sounds like... William Friedkin was trying to do something similar where uh, Benissa del Toro plays U.S. Army Sergeant First Class Aaron Hallam, a former U.S. uh, Army Delta Force operator who spent much of his career performing covert assassinations in service of the government. These missions leave the sensitive and intelligent Hallam conflicted, and it is implied that he was either set up or that the government became dissatisfied with the results of his more recent assignments uh, that result in his current predicament. And I guess he's in the wilderness of, like, Silver Falls State Park in Oregon. He encounters two deer hunters that have, like, expensive scoped rifles. For some reason, he tells them that because of the sophisticated scopes, they are not, quote, true hunters. They pursue through the woods but are no match for his skill and use of traps. He eventually kills the pair with his knife. So he's, like, Rambo but immediately just starts, like, murdering people for psychotic <laughs> reasons. And then, uh, And then Tommy Lee Jones is his basically like, his combat, like, you know, wilderness survival instructor, kind of like his Colonel Troutman, who gets, like, brought in to basically, like, help catch him and, like, bring him in. And I guess, like, the backstory is that Hallam uh, has gone renegade after severing severe battle stress from his time in the coast of a war. So he was probably doing some real shady shit. He was probably like fighting with like alongside Al Qaeda and stuff. Uh, you know, and, uh, uh I guess, you know, then it just kind of, I think it sort of dissolves into like a kind of dumb, like action pursuit thriller. Uh, but I think there might be some conspiracy, um, uh, Kind of things around like, You know the classified ops that he was Involved in and uh, And Yeah I guess like I, I never Actually like saw it but like the FBI Is involved like JSOC it's probably Might be one of the first mentions in a Movie of like the joint special operations Command specifically mm. That became you know the real like Tip of the spear in the war on terror But anyways I mean this came out like the year That god this came out the Month that we invaded Iraq
3: Yeah. So like weird vibes. Yeah, the whole uh device of like, oh, they're they're not true hunters, uh, so therefore like they must die. Uh (laughs) although again sounds very programmed to kill.
2: It sounds very like MK Ultra. Um
3: Yes. Uh uh, yes, it's, uh, it's definitely, like, an interesting sort of take on Rambo. Not as interesting as, uh, the idea that we already have copywritten with the Writers Guild of America about Rambo, uh, and Bigfoot, or Bigfoot as Rambo, or something. Yes, exactly, Um, exactly. But, you know, uh, close. Um, yeah, so there's definitely, like, a a lot, yeah, and the, the one, uh, before that, as we did mention, is Rules of Engagement, which is, uh, based on a story by, by Jim Webb, which is itself seems kind of based on Jim Webb's own life, but kind of like, you know, obviously uh, extrapolated into a a fantasy. Um, but it does have, uh, well, you know, to, just to summarize, the the movie stars, uh, Samuel L. Jackson as this guy, I think Colonel Trilling, I want to say, uh, like, uh, let me just uh, confirm that that's uh, correct, because I didn't rewatch it uh, prior uh, to this episode. It's, it's quite a, a bad... No, it's Terry Childers, so I guess that's where I, I conflated those two names. But anyway, yeah. So, um, uh, Childers is uh, played by Samuel L. Jackson, um, and uh, he, like, uh, basically, the movie, the substance of the movie is about how he's sent into Yemen... To like evacuate this ambassador, um, mm-hmm. but uh, from like a protest, anti-American protest is happening at at the embassy, very much like Benghazi. Yes, uh, you know, very like uh, it's a very much Benghazi situation, um, and so like it's kind of neb- it's a very brutal scene that like you know William Freaking does not shy away from like showing in like full detail um like uh you know so there's some like you know gunfire you know they seem to be they're, they're under fire obviously but there's it's just general mixed crowd of like women and children etc cetera, etc cetera. samuel L. jackson he won't let his fellow marines die so he's just like waste the motherfuckers and they just like open fire and they massacre like 83 yemenis um uh-huh. and yeah. the whole movie is kind of this like ponderous like meditation over like whether he was you know he did anything wrong um you know or if like you know whether he did the right thing or not which obviously uh he didn't uh because he murdered a bunch of like kids and women uh yeah. who were not armed uh but yeah, exactly yeah it's, um, it's
2: got this kind of sorkin for my i think i saw it yeah it's, it's definitely a sort, sor- few it does good have a men sorkiny,
3: yeah few good men type vibe you know yeah there's even like well uh it's kind of like what if sorkin took like a cobra potion or something <laughs> uh and like he like because it's kind like you know it's the same yeah. sort of off op- it's the same sort of opposition of like you know these like slimy liberals who like one of the best parts is that like so there's like a so the the evil guy is named sokol uh and he you know he's like this evil liberal uh national security advisor i guess and he's like you gotta court martial this guy to appease the arab world you know mm. like we have to persecute him for a war crime i'm a liberal you know like uh like, Just the like kind like monty of loser right who, is trying to oppress the troops, yeah, exactly. Just like Monty, aka Scorpio, um, <laughs> who, like, you know, has to indict this guy. He is so slimy that it doesn't make any sense. But you know, uh, he actually there's a tape proving that. There's even this really ridiculous scene where uh, the 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 uh, the, the attorney um, who's uh, defending him, uh, who I I guess is his former comrade as i recall yeah um he was wounded and yeah this is one of the the, the, the most jim webby parts because uh, mm-hmm. there's a prologue uh to the movie uh before any of the you know the, the main plot takes place it sort of gives you a sense of uh samuel jackson or his character and his relationship with the guy who becomes his defense attorney where they're in vietnam and you mm-hmm. know uh samuel jackson does what has to be done by like just blasting some prisoner of war in the head to intimidate yes. someone so that, yeah. you know, uh, they can, uh, you know, call off a mortar attack. So that will save, uh, you know, the life of, uh, Hodges who eventually becomes a defense attorney. And so wow. that guy becomes a defense attorney. And at one point he, I think goes on a fact finding mission to Yemen, you know, uh, and he is sort of interviewing people and, you know, everyone's like, yeah, they find the unarmed crowd and he sees this girl you know, on crutches, like this sad little cute girl, like, you know, who who's injured. And um, one of the, the most, like, like, galling, like, awful moments of this movie is, like, uh, there's, uh, which one assumes this is what will be shown on the tape that uh, the evil guy destroys, which makes absolutely no sense, because, like, if there were a tape proving this, then, like, you could just exonerate him, and you wouldn't have to appease the Arab world. Like, why, like, you know, it doesn't make any sense, like, you know, if you could just prove that he did nothing wrong, because literally what is shown is that, like, you know, there's even, there's this very, like, memorable shot of this cute little girl, like, literally, like, you know, a 10-year-old pointing, like, you know, Cobra's, like, jaddy. At like, you know, like the Marines, <laughs> like just blasting away with this like cold look on her face, you know, just like brutal. It's killer, very like a, American
2: like, sniper, like no little kid, yeah. like stop running at me with that bomb. Like, you know, Yeah,
3: it's th- yeah, like literally like the the position of the movie is that like all of these Yemenis, like the mothers and the kids, like they all came out. Like, they all had guns, and they all were coming out to, like, kill these Marines, and what Samuel L. Jackson did, like, that's, like, the take... I mean, William Friedkin has said, like, it's ambiguous, it's ambiguous, you know, I don't (laughs) know. I Like, he said something like, I made this movie because I couldn't decide if, you know, what he did was right or wrong, so I made this movie to find out the answer, you know? But I feel like it just comes off as, like, this very shrill, like, awful propaganda, Um, and, yeah, so like depicting like this uh you know that really if the truth were known if like the liberals hadn't destroyed the evidence then you would see that these so-called innocents like they're actually terrorists too yeah yeah well just Uh, to just to um
2: to uh, put into context like freaking's idea that he was like trying to go for some ambiguity here i just want to read uh from the review you gave me from september 2000 when this came out oh yeah out. This is a great um, review it's really Penses great because it basically yeah, you know it's, it's it, it saw, says yeah, like yeah. oh wow this is gonna you know ba- this movie is basically propaganda like brainwashing us to accept a new war in the middle east um yeah it is exactly mm-hmm. kind of what it is but yeah in terms of um yeah. you know the moral gray areas of this character i guess um he writes that like childers samuel L. jackson's execution of a Vietnamese soldier during the opening sequence of the film is seen as an acceptable method of getting what he wants. Indeed, the surviving Vietnamese soldier that had witnessed the incident later concedes that Childers acted properly, and in the most risable scene of the film, and there are many, the surviving soldier actually salutes the very man who executed his yeah. colleague. This act of admiration and honor suggests, in fact, that although America may have lost the battle in Vietnam, they actually won the moral war, that their tactics and their attitude to combat is ultimately worthy of respect, and even even praise from the enemy if you buy if you can mm-hmm. buy this propaganda the shocking political and moral heart of sequence after sequence and rules of engagement then i guess you can believe anything so yeah i mean the uh, i i don't remember that scene from it but i kind of want to go back and rewatch it now but the idea that like a like a Viet Cong soldier a north vietnamese soldier like flies to america to testify about the guy yeah. that shot his like comrade in the head next to him uh, right. is actually yeah. like he's a like, great man thi- yeah exactly i would have yeah, done the same it's... thing like uh, yeah okay uh... yeah that, i think definitely is jim webb uh writing from experience um also you know what else is like maybe one of the more dis- even more disturbing things than like william freak and directing this is the screenplay was written by Stephen gagan
1: hmm.
2: like who wrote uh... traffic and uh syriana and then right. kind of got it seemed for Reasons that are somewhat uh, vague got kind of blackballed from Hollywood, and now was let back to like make the Doolittle movie, uh <laughs> to write the Doolittle movie. But oh, like, awesome. yeah, like no, it's it seemed like a slap uh, in the cool. face, kind of like this is all you get now. You don't get to make any savvy <laughs> politi- about, yeah, geopolitical yeah, thrillers anymore. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah but uh, it's wow. weird that on the front end that he got. You would have think somebody given the sensibility of his two other scripts <laughs> that he wrote in the 2000s, that this, like, would, would have been completely revolting for him to, like, adapt Jim Webb's, like, psychotic story about doing war mm-hmm. crimes uh, and how, like, awesome... It was. Maybe it was his experience in this movie that, like, made him sussed out. I don't know. Um,
3: yeah, but, uh, yeah, just to uh, clarify, like, in case people want to skip this movie, which I wouldn't necessarily blame them for, yeah, like, uh, the star kind of witness that they bring back at the end is the guy who, you know, the officer who he shot the POW to intimidate. And then, yeah, he comes back, and of course there's that, like, very awful scene where, like, they salute each other. And that, like, you know, that actually ties directly into what, like, Jim Webb's famous thing from the debate in 2016, where they ask, like, you know, who's the enemy that you're proudest to have? Um, And Hillary, (laughs) you know, famously said, uh, well, in addition to the NRA, the health insurance companies, the drug companies, and the Iranians... Uh, and probably the Republicans, um, uh-huh. you know, uh, J- and Jim Webb said, I'd have to say the enemy soldier that threw the grenade that wounded me, but he's not around right now to talk to. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I feel like, that. you know, the idea of like the enemy I'm proudest to have, like kind of this mutual respect or, uh, you know, whatever, uh that, like, somehow, you know, like, we knew that we would do the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of an interesting yeah. take on the question, but, yeah, I feel like it's a Jim Webb kind of fantasy of, like, you know, this uh, respect, to, yeah, the the ideological victory was won, uh, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah,
2: I yeah, of, yeah. As, as, uh, as the Vietnamese banner would say. Um, yeah. Uh, at least in Webb's uh, mind, it was won. Uh, I just want to read the end here, because it is haunting. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, early on in the film... Again, this is in September 2000. Early on in the film, Childers suggests to Hodges that the army is an empty thing without an enemy, an organization without a purpose. You can't help feeling that this film sets out to create one, to establish an enemy for America's benefit. This is not a film that encourages peace or resolution. It actively constructs conflict and estrangement, identifying a new society to combat, vilifying and demonizing a culture to give the US a purpose, a sense of direction. Because without such a focus, without a target for their enmity and distrust, America is lost and alone clinging to empty, hollow rules that mean little. In the foul world of rules of engagement, it is the battle of law versus instinct, and instinct must win at every turn. It encourages you to identify an enemy, to trust your fears, indulge in your prejudices, to act on your gut. And once you target an enemy and surrender to instinct, you can act without a shred of guilt or fear of reprisal, and in the eloquent patriotic words of the heroic Colonel Terry Childers, just, quote, waste the motherfuckers. I mean yes. uh, did like did PNAC, like executive produce this movie?
3: Yeah. Cuz um, I couldn't I think don't of. don't know. This I guess this is part I, of
2: yeah. yeah. Uh, I sorry, read that at one
3: point Jim Webb was like upset at like the direction that it was going in maybe with Stephen Gagan's like rewrites or something on on the hmm. script and so he got upset and he tried to like actually get the Pentagon to stop cooperating with uh, the production of the movie but of course they eventually hmm. did cooperate. As they do with all this stuff, so to an extent, yeah. the whole thing was like micromanaged by, you know, or at least in some way, like manager handled by, by. so they definitely approved of. Um, yeah. I mean, why would they? It's a completely insane. And I think you could um, almost,
2: say yeah. you, almost say that you could almost say this movie forms a, a, a. There might be more films, but at least a kind of troika of like weird predictive programming U.S. military movies that came out in 2000 and 2001. and so I'm thinking of this movie. Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor and Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down, which uh, both of those, I believe, came out the summer before 9-11 and had so much kind of uh, foresight into what we're about to be sucked back into even though at the time it didn't seem like there was going to be another Pearl Harbor or army rangers were going to be stuck in some urban area in the Mina region you know fighting terrorists and warlords and things like that uh or you know I mean the rules of engagement might in a weird way be kind of like at least the the thing of it happening would be kind of feels like a Clinton era, like, Oh, there was an embassy thing and then people open fire. Now it's an international incident. Um, you know, fly Jed Bartlett out there to, you know, assuage the, uh, the yeah, Arab Street of, or something right. like that yeah. You yeah, know yeah, like yeah. it, it kind of it felt a little More low stakes but still all of these Are like laying out like Sometimes like literally the the Cobra Mantra like as
3: long as we play by their Bullshit rules we lose
0: <laughs> yeah, exa- <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs>
3: Their bullshit rules yeah uh, And it's really it does like kind of like It feeds back into like I think that, that Review uh in Senses of Cinema I think uh, from September 2000 Is very astute uh, Because yeah it and it does, in a way, like, feed back into uh, what happened uh, in, uh, or you know, the opening sequence of The Exorcist. And it's the same type of, like, gaze uh, that it has over, like, the Yemeni civilians that you see, like, on, you know, the, the sort of the, the unwashed hordes, like, in Iraq, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that Father Marin is kind of uh, mingling around, you know. Like, there's a sense of, of menace, the sense of, 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 you know, uh, evil or... or uh, that sort of, re- and I think that you know William Friedkin, like I think that he has this, you know, maybe uh, another p- parallel perhaps to to Trump. Not to, I mean, hopefully we can just get away from mentioning Trump constantly now that uh, he's not going to be president anymore. But maybe not. But like <laughs> um, he, like uh, it has this, uh, like you know, kind of yeah, like you said, maybe like a sort of paranoid, sort of like very fearful, almost like childlike uh, kind of. Uh, you know, just sense of, of dread or, like, uh, hmm. apprehension, like, around the world, like, a, a, a double, like, fascination and fear of, like, foreign things uh, yeah. that, you know, in some way becomes, like, a prism to express, like, uh, these boomery uh, anxieties in, in a way that, like, sometimes, you know, really uh, hits uh, and other times, you know, yeah. results in, well, in the rules of you, engagement. Maybe that's a resonance with Jim Webb in a way, you know. Yeah, uh, you yeah. yeah.
2: It, it could yeah. be, or resonance with other like boomer artists who um really spun a lot of i guess like you know memorable content at you could say at the very least uh from their kind of formative childhood experiences or the things that they whether it's like flash gordon or watching citizen kane for Friedkin, mm-hmm. or other things yeah. like that uh, but it almost felt like maybe that most of them kind of got stuck in that adolescent mentality to some degree which in in some ways was like more mature back then because like people still Mm -hmm. kind of like grew up faster so you know being stuck at like 30 is not necessarily uh completely infantile whereas like today just like love marvel movies or whatever um right yeah you know what i mean but but it's like Mm -hmm. they're kind of there's like this inability past a certain point to like build upon this like fear instead it's just like I'm just going to stay with this vibe and kind of explore it on the level that I'm kind of comfortable with and not feel like I have to venture deeper down, you know, this uh, this rabbit hole or build upon it or be more, I don't know. I mean, mature is kind of like a mm, rickety term to apply to all this because, you know, art's a little more fuzzy than that. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I think there is a kind of like the the edgy, impulsive, like, shoot-from-the-hip thing is something that is kind of inherent to uh, the young in a lot of ways. Yeah. And filmmaking yeah. is not necessarily a medium. I would say it's less than something like popular music uh, or, like, being a rock star or something like that. You know, I think the, the complexities of, like, filmmaking, I mean, I think there's a reason that you don't see, like, a ton of, like, 22-year-old, like, hotshot directors, like bursting onto the scene if somebody's like a 35 year old director and they burst onto the scene they're still considered like kind of young you know in because people go on at their 67 it's like golf or something you know like you could direct into your 70s or 80s and uh well people seem to usually have kind of like a peak period where they make their best work and then you know mileage varies beyond that like people are still you know some filmmakers have gone into interesting phases like later in life and i guess now we're going to be like i guess we are seeing that with things like the irishman or you know other maybe william Freakin will make another movie but maybe uh there's an inability to... I don't know. It's just, even people that are older than boomers. I don't think it's just about boomers, but about but this kind of epoch yeah. in our culture and that era of the film industry. Like, you're like Francis Ford Coppola seemed to just kind of, like, give... He still makes, like, weird experimental movies every now and then that, like, mm. never get seen anywhere. Uh, but it's like, damn, like, dude, you were, like... You were an extremely big deal. Uh, or other people just fell by the wayside, whether there was, like, Hal Ashby or Michael Cimino that kind of just, like, never climb back on the horse again and then you had people like Freakin' who muddled through making kind of like weird kind of elevated genre movies that like sometimes worked and then sometimes like rules of engagement were like kind of very cringe (laughs) and strange in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. uh and now maybe it's irrelevant because they're not only these people that have established big names are going to be able to make anything remotely kind of like original or quirky now because everyone else is on this, like, ladder to just, like, do a franchise movie and, like, plug into something that already exists and just do, like, their take of, like, Deadpool or, you know, yeah. their take of, like, Guardians or, you know... Uh, like, yes, yeah, like Yeah, like, the new Baby Yoda um, spinoff. Like, uh, anything like yeah. that. And mm-hmm. there's not as much room to... I don't think Disney would allow, like, a young Friedkin with, like, a property, like, you know, Star Wars to, like... Uh, get as trippy and weird and like liminal with it you know things have to be yeah. more clear now and less uh, less messy and
3: complex yeah. there's definitely an impressionistic quality uh yeah and also kind of like a, a wild uh quality to uh frequencies and i think you know in the leap of faith you know where in the same documentary where he mentioned uh, Stalin killing, you know, uh, 100 Gerlian people or whatever, because yeah. they were worthless, um, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Not the one where he praised Hitler or, you know, where he, uh, you know, talked about uh, how there's some good things about Hitler or whatever, but our, uh, our assessment of him should not change. Uh, he uh, said, you know, that one of the things that interests him the most is the way that dreams uh, can kind of connect people Across like vast distances or that the way that like once something that happens in one place, like, you know, maybe, uh, for instance, like, uh, what happens to father Mary in Iraq and then what happens, uh, in, in Washington, like the, the way that these things can be, uh, kind of connected and the way that, you know, and he really that to even his artistic process where he said that, uh, he feels that there's some other force that, that guides him in a way to, to do these things. Um, and, uh, you know, that, uh, he doesn't necessarily make these conscious decisions when he's making decisions. Like, uh, you know, I think, uh, I forget which one of his movies he did this in. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not The Exorcist, but, uh, it starts off black and white and then it kind of, uh, fades into color. Um, mm, I and, forget. uh, yeah, I, I forget which one, uh, that is, but, you know, he mentioned doing that and he, uh, said, you know, he didn't make even, like, a conscious decision to do that. It was just something that, you know sort of uh he did yes that's kind of shoot from the hip thing where it's almost like a maybe it's like a kind of channeling uh in a way and uh that can open you you know you open yourself up to uh different uh impulses that can go in in all sorts of directions but definitely can be Mm -hmm. uh revealing like uh yeah it actually kind of uh what you were saying earlier about uh the movie another movie that i hadn't seen uh deal of the century uh you know involving like uh this sort of uh, UAV like a uh, drone basically That's that, so uh, ahead you know. of the curve man um, like, yeah what the hell yeah it reminded me of you know in this sort of idea of connection across distances it reminded me this connection with of Pazuzu with the wind uh, and uh, you know the, the you know the, the traveling on the wind and the the wind as is a, is a conveyance of of magical power and uh, you know whether or good or ill and uh, there's a very interesting uh, Essay um, that was printed in a book um, called uh, "Sources of Evil." Uh, that was the title. The subtitle was something you know that actually explains what the book is about, which is uh, like Mesopotamian exorcistic lore. Um, but uh, the essay is called "Highway to Hell: uh, The Winds as Cosmic Conveyors and in Mesopotamian Incantation Texts." Uh, mm. It's by Enrique Jimenez, and uh, he talks about this um, uh, this sort of uh, you know uh, aspect of the wind. Um, and he points out how this is something that has, you know, uh, exists in, in uh, you know, more uh, recent traditions as well. Like, uh, you know, he mentions a uh, hadith, but, uh, you know, kind of reminds me, uh, he talks a lot about the whole idea of uh, untying knots as sort of uh, spells being kind of knots, um, mm. which is an idea that occurs in the, in the Quran and in Surah Al-Falak. Uh, you know, the, it talks about, uh, it invokes kind of Allah's protection against the, the evil of, of those who, who blow on knots, uh, you know, which is mm. kind of often taken to be witches, but, you know, could also be, uh, different, uh, forces, but, uh, yeah, there's another, uh, very, like, you know, just, uh, on, on the sort of ritual component, uh, and the aspect of Pazuzu, there's another essay I, I remember from, from that collection. Unfortunately, I don't have a copy, uh, with me, but, uh, I recall that, uh, the last one, I'll see if I can find, uh, a quote if I took one down, uh, yeah, um, it's uh, the grotter type in text uh, as humanistic Mapa Mundi, uh, which is by Franz Wigerman. Um, and uh, the gr- grotter type in text, I guess, is a, uh, um, you know, uh, Mesopotamian or Babylonian uh, text, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a magical or metaphysical text. Uh, just to clarify what it is, it's a, an Assyrian copy of a Babylonian original recovered from Asser. Uh, similar texts are known from Nineveh. This is actually very relevant because it's uh you know what uh, it's often thought to be is uh, um like descriptions or prescriptions for sculptors uh, to provide the knowledge required to create uh, the correct appearance of, of a divinity, you know, statue. Because, of course, it's very important, like I said, you know, these actually are the deities in a way, so to create the correct mm-hmm. appearance is very important, so they're guides to that sense. Uh, this, is, this essay has an interesting take on it because it invokes kind of the, the quality of, of the stage, or the theatrical, or maybe even the filmic in a way, uh, especially, like, in the sense of imagination. So I'm going to read from a review of uh, this collection, Sources of Evil, Studies in Mesopotamian Exorcistic Lore, uh, because I don't have the actual book, but I would recommend the book because uh, it's an interesting essay collection. But uh, so, um, so, in particular, uh, Wiggerman argues that we should view the text as presenting the deities and their descriptions in three-dimensional space. And this is a quote from Wiggerman: The space that accompanied this web of supernatural creatures can be viewed as a temple and ultimately as a model of the symbolic space in which the beings in question acted out their various symbolic roles, a microcosm. To demonstrate... He provides two diagrams of the temple and the placement of the images within it that demonstrate how the reader might use the god or type in text as a guidebook. In essence, the text invites the reader to visualize entering the temple and to identify with the only other human in the tableau, the baby on Saucer's lap, and to see its and your life lined out in front of you, birth, work, a measure of divine support, inescapable death, and an eternity in another world. He also isolates two iconographic themes. The protection of exits and entrances by guardian figures, an audience involving a host, two guests, a master of ceremonies, and a banquet. Together, the players and themes define the nature of the stage as a microcosm, and the ultimate subject as a humanistic mapa mundi. Um So, this is, I think, very interesting in light of, like, The Exorcist, basically. This, like, lines mm-hmm. up, like, with you know, the sort of ritual chamber of Reagan's bedroom, uh, mm. very well, uh, and shows kind of the, like, uh, the, the parallels or the, the analog between this, this very, very ancient, uh, kind of, uh, ritual, uh, r- rules or, 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 guidelines for, uh, you know, uh, uh, uh idols or, uh, temple architecture, uh, with the way that like these these movies are put together, and mm-hmm. I think the same forces that like are are at play uh, in one are in a way at play in the other, um, mm. you know. But uh, so yeah, yeah that's yeah. something that I that yeah. is. Um,
2: yeah, it all lines up.
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it all it all lines up. Yeah. Okay. Um, word. Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah so, so I think yeah. uh, we're like like two forty five right now
3: really uh i thought this was gonna be two hours but i, <laughs> I guess know, that's I fine uh, uh okay well, then we're... i guess we should wrap up but we might yeah. return to some of these subjects uh in the future um yeah uh, a was few there of these anything...
2: movies especially there i mean there's yeah the uh, the sort of predictive programming aspect of some engagement is interesting yeah it definitely is. the deal of the century is what i'd like yeah. i'd really like to see what its portrayal of like sketchy arms dealers and south american dictators Mm is like uh maybe when we circle around
3: i really want to do do the guardian now too yeah uh there's a lot of uh, stuff there yeah Yeah. um really even the sequels to the exorcist even though they're not freaking movies like could uh be interesting i I didn't realize this but i guess father marin was based on pierre chardin um Mm -hmm. and uh yeah who is like an interesting figure in himself who's kind of ties into some of that uh some of the Bigfoot stuff, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I would I would like yeah.
2: to um, go because this has been more about Friedkin, you know, the filmmaker and the, like the films themselves. But yeah, I would like to kind of explore exorcism in you know, uh, kind of more, you know exorcism itself like you know in the catholic yeah. context like today because you do see like articles pop up every now and then that you know it's, it hasn't been totally stopped in uh mm-hmm. in the vatican yeah. and around the world and of course there's all kinds of other religious traditions that have sort of analogs to other forms of exorcism themselves
3: yeah pretty and, much all of them do it's just like a slight difference in terms of everyone like kind of believes in demonic possession because it's basically real, uh, you know, well, I mean, it is real, uh, the question is, like, you know, there are some epistemologists, I guess, that deny its reality, like, but they, I think, still acknowledge, like, the, at least, like, the reality of it as a, as a phenomenon, whether they disagree about, like, the ontological reality of an external force, although most people, (laughs) including myself, do believe in some kind of, like, well, the question of inside and outside is very complicated, blah blah. blah you know, but <laughs> yeah, uh, right. I do think that, like, you know, when you get into these like subtle issues, but uh, you know, there's there's something there's something going on, uh, and uh, you know, it's a very like u- universally held idea. You know, like uh jinn possession, like, is what you know Muslims widely consider it to be, like uh, you know something that's very possible and occurs sure. often. You know, uh, I imagine. Jews have their equivalent. Certainly it's something that occurs in like a traditional paganistic uh, context and in, in various places. It um, occurs in Memphis you know.
2: Horrorcore.
3: Yeah, right. Yeah, sometimes you, know? you smoke a blunt of death and yeah, like, exactly. et cetera. Uh, yeah. Or you get on that um, Ouija board
2: and Satan tells you to kill and you do it. Right, and, yeah. You know, I mean, these things are, they, yeah, they're all over the place still. In yeah. Our, you know, in our uh, scientific era.
3: Yeah, I feel like the idea of, like, uh, Jin and, like, their possession of people is, more than, like, any particular episode, is, like, you know, one of the ongoing, like, running themes, but, yeah, <laughs> doing, uh, you know, Catholicism, doing, like, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, really, even the Exorcism itself could be, like, a, a whole other uh, thing, it's really uh, hard to criticize episodes, but, yeah, uh, Pierre Chardin, I, you know, he was, like, a very controversial... Uh, theologian, but he was involved in the whole Peking man thing that was like sort of, uh, mm. you know, it's, it's dismissed now, but uh, and the Piltdown man, I think he also had some kind of connection with, okay. um, or maybe not. I think, I guess it was just the Peking man, but yeah, uh, and he, like, well, you know, was a vitalist, I guess, but yeah, that I guess was part of the inspiration for, for Father Marin because he got involved in the sort of archaeology and, and paleontology, but yeah, that was the only thing I came across just now when I was sort of uh, going through. Uh, some of that, uh, that, uh, Mesopotamian, uh, some of those Mesopotamian magical attacks I came across a figure called, like, Lossu or something, uh, the hairy mm-hmm. one. Um, uh, mm. yeah, just, uh, <laughs> yeah, just, uh, just saying. Interesting, uh, interesting,
2: mm, well, yeah, oh, Lachmoo, one of the monstrous Walkman. childrens
3: or demons of Tiamat, uh, the hairy one. Oh my god, it's... It's Sasquatch. Wow. Um, anyway. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Just, uh, some detection. <laughs> yeah. There. Anyway. Uh, he's out there. But um,
2: um, put the put the file that away under yeah, you know for Bigfoot two.
3: Yeah. It'll. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the B. The B files. Um. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Weird. Okay. But uh, anyway. So <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, we spiraled off in a couple uh, different directions, but I think that we did a uh, good overview. And yeah, I think that uh, you know, the general theme of uh, Demons and Jin will return, uh, and I think that we can maybe return to even some of these, uh, films that we touched on, uh, you know, yeah, um, yeah, we'll see, we'll see, yeah, yeah, yeah. there were two sequels that, like, I guess were big, big failures, uh, although maybe the third one less so than the second, the second was, Mm. like, everyone hated it, right, yeah, 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 I think Um, so, so. didn't quite take off, uh, yeah, yeah,
2: I guess Blatty okay. did the, the third he directed it. Yeah. Oh wow. All right. Wow. Okay. Well. Let's, let's wrap um, it up. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's all for now. Um, you know, I guess uh, Yeah. You know, check out check out his movies. They're not the most boring thing to watch even when they don't quite work. Um, yeah. Sorcerer is styled. great. I would definitely Sorcerer recommend great. Sorcerer to
3: anyone, and it's fairly little known, yeah. Extremely
2: recommend Sorcerer, yeah, and and maybe when we get, we get to like you know Contra Nine or something like South America Edition, uh, we might have occasion to talk about it again because, like we said, it it sort of hints at this underworld going on down there, and uh, yeah, it definitely it's very dark does. forces, yeah, um, um, but yeah, yeah, but until yeah, until, until then, um, you know, uh
3: yeah as always watch out for jinn uh, yeah
2: once, for Jin. once again watch yeah. out for Jin and also you know yeah, once, once again Ouija board, do not no Ouija Ouija board. boards. don't play
3: with it yeah if you get contacted by any kind of uh anyone especially any entity that has like any kind of official title like you know any kind of like military rank i wouldn't like correspond with it necessarily like you don't talk to like any captains um, or you might think Schumpier's he's Captain years, Howdy, but uh, he might
2: actually be H- SS Hauptsturmführer Howdy. And yeah,
3: exactly. You, know, you don't want any, any um, of that
2: business at all. Yeah, yeah.
3: definitely watch out. Um, watch out for them, yeah. and
2: and you just just say non nine to to Ouija. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just
3: say say nine.
2: Uh, n- non nine. Yes. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah. Yeah. That's all you got to
2: do. So. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Stay safe Um, out there, everybody, and uh, until next time, stay vigilant. Peace.